Have you ever heard of The Millionaire Next Door? I bet you have. Today we're going to interview John Pugliano, who is one of many Millionaires Next Door. Radical Personal Finance, Episode 54. Welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. My name is Joshua Sheets, and I am your host. Today is Thursday, September 4, 2014. Today, I'm going to bring you an interview show, and this interview is with John Pugliano, who is now a financial advisor, doesn't have a long history in that business. He's also a podcaster, blogs a little bit. He's a millionaire next door, and so we're going to talk to him a little bit about his journey. I'm working hard to bring you a broad array of guests, and I love to bring you people from all different backgrounds, and John is uh, no exception to that rule. I want to bring you somebody from a unique background. He is currently working in the financial advisory space. He's currently working in, in, the, in the financial podcasting space, uh, but he doesn't come from a history of that. And so we have recorded and had put together a really great conversation of some of the concepts and ideas that have served him as he was able to grow his wealth over his career uh, to ultimately becoming a millionaire by about the age of 50. I think he said 50. It was uh, maybe 50 or 52, something like that, 53. Uh, about 50-ish to become about a millionaire-ish. And you'll hear all the details in the interview. So that's going to be today's show. Two quick uh, administrative notes. Uh, FYI, in the beginning of the show, we talk a lot about uh, John's experience and John's history and some of the lessons that he has learned and I have learned about personal finance in the first half. The second half of the show, we talk a little bit about some of what John has learned with regards to stock investing. So at this point in time, he works as an active manager of portfolios for clients, and it's very interesting. So I would love to bring you as much information as I can from as many people from from very diverse backgrounds, and John is part of that. And I try to give an opportunity, try to ask some difficult questions. Uh, I apologize. Sometimes I, I, I sound a little snarky. I don't mean to, and I'm actually going to clean that up. Sometimes when I ask these snarky-sounding questions, uh, I don't mean to sound too snarky, uh, but I do like to ask good questions and try to give pe- hear different people's observations and opinions. So I hope you like that. Number two is that at one point during the Skype interview, I wasn't able to hear him at all, and so I thought the call dropped. So you'll hear me say hello, hello, and then I hit pause on the recorder because I thought the call had dropped, and that's what I do in that in that situation. But I wound up, I just had a problem with my headphones, so I quickly realized it, but I'm probably missing maybe 10 seconds of audio, 15 seconds of audio, something like that. So don't be too surprised. With that, here's the interview. So John, welcome to the Radical Personal Finance Podcast. I appreciate your being with me this morning. Hey, Joshua. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> so this should be fun. I'm looking forward to this. I always like to talk to people who are experienced and knowledgeable about uh, finance because I always learn I always learn something new, and I love to, I love to learn. So I'm, I've been looking forward to this conversation ever since we scheduled it. Uh, for the benefit of the audience, share with us a little bit about your story and why on earth would you feel yourself uh, – why on earth would you want to be on a, on a uh, personal finance podcast talking about what you've learned over the years? Sure thing. Well, uh, you know, Joshua, I guess just just in terms of your podcast, I found you just a couple of weeks ago. I, I have listened to, to I think most most if not all of your shows. Um, I like the direction you're coming from. That's why I want to be on your show. Uh, in terms of me, you know, I'm just uh, I'm really kind of just 
uh, you know, a guy. I'm just kind of the millionaire next door kind of guy. Um, a, a few years ago, I decided to stop uh, to start my own investment firm. I wasn't happy with what I saw the industry offering, and um, so I, you know, I put out my shingle in, re- in regards to, to starting my own investment firm. But uh, you know, I'm just somebody that uh, a middle class guy kind of struggled in life like most people do, trying to figure out where you fit, where you belong. Uh, you know, it was about 35 years old before I really figured it out. And uh, over the course of that next, uh, you know, 13 years or so, 12 years, I was able to get myself financially independent where I could leave the corporate world and I could, I could uh, you know, basically live the lifestyle that I wanted to. What was your path to financial independence? Were you an extreme saver? Were you just generally frugal? Were you starting businesses on the side? How did you become financially independent? Yeah, I was I was a saver and an investor. Um, I, I think I'm one of the few people that actually have, have done pretty well in the stock market. I usually hear people that uh, that have made money somewhere else and then invest later. But uh, yeah, I was I was a really good saver. My wife and I very diligent savers, and um, had always been interested in the stock market. Really didn't make it a a, a kind of a moonlighting job until I say was about 35 years old, and uh, over the course of that next uh, you know decade or so, I was able to. Uh, uh, to really do well for myself, and at the same time, I also learned more about how to sell myself professionally, how to make more in my in my industry, and uh, my, you know my income raised raised as well. Sure. What was your industry? What type of work were you doing? I was an industrial sales rep. Um, did, did sales and marketing for about twenty years. Uh, everything from from packaging machinery to you know plastics products, paper. So n- nothing glamorous, nothing fancy. Um, and, and I tell people, don't discount that. You can, you know, particularly young people, you can make a lot of money in sales. Sales and marketing is is by far the place where you're gonna, I think, make the most money with the least effort. I agree. It's <clears throat> the thing about sales, at least just from my observation and my experience. I always wanted to learn to be an, a good salesperson because uh, I was convinced that in order to do well financially, you needed to master a financially valuable skill, and sales is one of those things where. If you have an entrepreneurial bent, but you don't know what business you might want to start, or you're not good at the uh, perhaps the organization of a small business, then sales gives you an opportunity to sell a product for someone else. And in a good sales organization, there is no inc- no no ceiling on your income. So whether that's industrial sales, or whether that's selling you know Boeing seven forty sevens, or whether that's selling uh, you know a network marketing product that's that's uh, a quality product, or whether that is real estate or or insurance or uh, shoot investments. Um, you know that that then selling is a way to generate a substantial income, and that's one of the necessary uh, keys to building wealth. You got to have an income that's able to support the family, and then enough to to accumulate a difference. Yeah, absolutely. And what you said right there is what I try and point out to people. I mean, all the things you just mentioned in terms of selling. You know, people think about I don't know used car salesman or door to door salesman or something, but you know it doesn't matter what your personality type is. I mean, there's inside sales, there's outside sales, there's there's highly technical sales, there's sales that involve you know uh, you know decades of uh, of lead time. You know, if you're selling if you're selling Boeing Boeing jets, you know it isn't like you're not going to go uh, get a purchase order tomorrow for that. There there are long lead times, uh, all personality types, all skill levels. It's a fascinating, excellent career for people. It really is. And it's a career that the thing I love about sales is you are purely judged on your results. 
it doesn't really matter if you have a you know if you have a college degree or if you don't have a college degree or if you're black or if you're white or if you are you know it doesn't matter what matters is your results and if you're male female any of the stuff if you're handicapped if you don't have one leg if you have tattoos all over if you can get good results in sales then then you have you can do well and and so it's one of those it's one of the great equalizers, the great egalitarian businesses where you're paid for your performance and that's it. And you're right about, I remember reading, I'm not sure, have you read uh, Tom Stanley's book, The Millionaire Mind by any oh, chance? Yeah, I've, I've read, I've tried to read all of his stuff. He's, when I mentioned being about 35 years old, that's the year The Millionaire Next Door came out. Uh, really? 19, 1996 is when I was 35. That book changed my life. It changed my thinking. That's, uh, that's awesome. So you just weren't thinking along those lines. Tell me more. Well, I I was thinking uh, I was I was bra- I was brought up in a you know middle middle class uh, I'd say lower middle class type uh, economic environment, and I was taught that uh, or had had ingrained in me somehow brainwashed in me that that you know being a white collar had had to be a white collar guy. I mean it was it was you know getting an office job working for a big corporation that was the way to that was a way to build wealth, and um, and so I pursued that path. I, I done a lot of time in the military. I, I went from being an enlisted guy to being an officer. Uh, I'm not real into bureaucracy and things, so that didn't work out well for me. Uh, I went into corporate America, and, and again, that, that was a lot like, you know, that's the reason they hired junior military officers, because it's a big bureaucracy. So I didn't, I didn't do really well there, and I just didn't feel like, it is one I, didn't, I, I say that wrong. It isn't that I didn't do well. I didn't feel like I fit. And I gravitated to the sales end of things because I, I was very entrepreneurial. I could have my independence. Um, you know, the office politics didn't matter. What mattered was if I was out in the road selling things. And that's why I gravitated that way. But when I read, uh, Thomas Stanley's book, that's really the first time that, that I, you know, his original title for that book, the millionaire next door, the original title was going to be the blue cat, the blue collar millionaire. Really? And the, and the publishers didn't like that. So he changed it to the, to, uh, and eventually evolved into the, uh, the millionaire next door. But uh, you know he talks about the guys that own the uh, the the, uh, the scrap lot or the uh, right. the junkyard the, you know the, the plumbing contractor. And when I read that book, it it rang true to me. I I I thought back to my life of all the people I grew up around, and it, you know it was the it was the guy next door that the owned the machine shop that you wouldn't think he was he looked like an old grandpa, but he was the guy that had the money. It was the uh, you know was the doctor that lived a few doors up from me, but but he wasn't he wasn't a flashy doctor. I mean he was a uh, he was your Ron Paul kind of uh, right. obstetrician that delivered, you know, delivered ten thousand babies, and he <laughs> probably never spent a dime. I mean, he drove he drove uh, an old beat up car, and that's just the way he was. Those right. were the guys. Those were the guys that had the money. It wasn't it wasn't the flashy people. It it wasn't the the vice presidents. It wasn't the guys living on the country clubs. They they were all broke. They're all they're all living paycheck to paycheck. Right. Yeah, that was my experience too. I read that when I was a a kid in high school and it gave me just that the thing I loved about it is because it was so survey based and research based that book Millionaire Next Door gave me the confidence to believe what I thought I believed and it gave me the numerical background to say to say this. And then I re- I went on to read uh when I started working in uh financial planning. I read um marketing to the affluent, selling to the affluent and networking with the affluent. Have you read those at all? 
I have. Okay, yes. so I just found the the, the blueprint. Uh, good. I've I've almost never found anybody who I find lots of pe- lots of people who've read The Millionaire Next Door, but I've almost never found anybody who's read Marketing, Selling, and Networking with the Affluent. But the game plan that he uses to lay out there, uh, as far as who to sell to, working in industry organizations, going where the competition is not, figuring out what your key uh, differentiator is, being an advocate for your clients. The Networking with the Affluent is is one of my mandatory must read books for anybody, just because it lays out the idea of of well to steal bob berg's title the go-giver you know the way that you build is by going and giving and serving your clients beyond what they expect and that's how you build this strong loyalty but when talking about the blue collar you know the blue collar business worker when i started in financial planning when you when you sign up in your first day and let's say let's say that unlike you so you you're you're working and building an investment advisory firm now but you've got you're doing it after the fact after you uh have built another career uh, when i started in, uh, in financial services i was the stereotypical 23 year old guy it was like oh let's go make a bunch of money. <laughs> let's go make a bunch of money selling investments and it's this horrible stereotype uh but it's true and so I I quickly so when you start off in that generally what everyone does is they call every single attorney they call every single doctor and they call every single corporate person i discovered i didn't like working with attorneys generally i had a couple of clients that i did like i didn't like working with doctors generally i had one two clients that i did like and i uh but i loved working with blue collar business owners and so i started doing what he would what he would say i would try to find the industrial park type of thing and get networked around within the industrial park and those are the people that i loved being with for for so many reasons, uh, it just was a. It, it fit my personality. It fit who I liked, and it fit what I did. Right. Uh, yeah. Go go to Seven Eleven at uh, five thirty six o'clock in the morning, when the uh, when the guys are in there filling up their trucks with gas, and uh, that's that's where all the, uh, the millionaire next doors are. And Tom Stanley said, I actually have reached out to him to try to get him on the show. He saved me a bunch of money too, because I was struggling with this. Uh, I'd never liked fancy cars, but I was struggling with this image, uh, like self-consciousness of what kind of image am I project? you know, what, what will people think of me, uh, this image that I'm projecting? So I had this old Honda Accord when I started, and it's this $2,000 car, and I would pull it up in front of, uh, at 300,000 miles on it by the time I sold it, and I would pull up in front of some millionaire, you know, millionaire's house and walk in and talk to him about his financial planning, and finally someone said, Joshua, listen, you got to get another car, because you're a great guy, but man, I have to look past your car to see you. So I'm looking around, and I'm thinking, well, maybe I should buy a Mercedes or a BMW, because that's what everyone in my business, you know, seems to drive. And so, but I didn't want to. And so I was looking at it, but I wrote to Tom Stanley and I said, Tom, uh, uh, or I said, Mr. Stanley, I said, what would you suggest if you, uh, what would you suggest a sales rep, you know, someone who's in financial services or trying to work with the millionaire next door, what would you suggest that I, that I drive? And he, you know, Mercedes, BMW, and he wrote back full size American SUV. And I said, he said, every single wealthy family has a suburban or an expedition or a Tahoe or something like that. And I said, ah, and I went and bought, and I found a, a very nice Ford Expedition that had, you know, it was four years old and it was a third of the price new. And it worked. It solved my personal self confidence problem, uh, but at a cheap price. And I, I, I never forgot that lesson. Uh, and he, so he saved me a bundle of money. I was so thankful for him. Yeah. And you talk about the image. You know, I, I work or I, I try and, anyways, exclusively work with, uh, with the millionaire next door people, uh, the, the, the blue collar guys, the, the, the entrepreneurs that have started their own business, you know, the guy that, that, uh, you know, whatever he paints cars or, or has a, uh, landscaping business, things like that. And, um, I, I, um, in fact, I heard one of your podcasts you were talking about, I think uh, when you went to the, 
to the uh, the podcast now thing. You know, guys wearing uh, tennis shoes, and right? Stuff. You know, I dress very casually. I I always say I, when I go to church, I put on a, a white shirt and a tie because. I respect God. I'll go, I'll do that for God, but I pretty much, I, I don't do it for too many other people. But, uh, you know, I've gotten to the point in my life where I can do what I want to do. Good call. But, uh, w- you know, when I'm meeting with people, um, it, it, when we go down that path, and I can tell whether they're, they're you know, voracious savers or whether they're spenders. And basically, if they're spenders, I, they don't have any money. I can't do anything for them. I can only work with people that have money. And, uh, you know, we talk about those things. I see you know, my CRV out there in the parking lot, mm-hmm. 2009, I bought it with cash. I'm mm-hmm. going to keep it for another 10 years or hand it down to one of my kids someday or something, you know, my, the Timex watch on my wrist, $35 at Walmart. Right. Um, I, I actually just the other day, uh, upgraded to an iPhone five because the, the battery went dead, in my other phone and it, it costs more to replace the battery than the, I think than the $25 I had bought the refurbished smartphone for. Mm-hmm. So I thought I broke down, I got an iPhone five, but, um, I just, I don't spend a lot of money. You know, I don't, I don't see a need for it. And I don't do it cause I'm, cause I'm cheap or cause I'm, you know, a tightwad. I just, um, yeah, I think it's one of those habits you develop where I, I do have nice things. I have things I like, you know, my car has leather seats. It has, it has a, a sunroof. It has air conditioning. It has good tires on it for the winter. You know I mean? It, it has the things that I need. I, I, I personally, all, you know, although my kids would love to have a BMW, I don't, uh, I don't see any reason for it. Sure. So I want to talk about two things with you and, I want to talk about your financial services practice because one of the things that you and I are in a unique position, we're working in an investment business, but because you have an RIA, uh, right, a registered investment advisory firm, um, yes. then you're free, you're, you are more free to talk candidly about the investment business than is somebody who's a broker at a large wirehouse. So I want to talk about that, but, but I don't want to start there. Um, because I think it would be interesting for two people with experience to kind of help people understand the financial services business a little bit and kind of see behind the scenes a little bit. I've worked in it. You came from the outside. And so I thought it w- that would be a good thing. But I would like to start with just maybe share with with us, share with me, because I'm younger than you are, and I'm and I'm poorer than you are. You know, I, I haven't, I, I'm not a millionaire yet. Uh, I'm, I'm working hard on my way, but I'm still in this wealth building stage. But you have, over a period of time, uh, built up wealth and become the millionaire next door. How did you do it, and what lessons would you share with me uh, and the audience as far as what worked for you in your path? Yeah, there's no, uh, you know, there's no secret formula. There's no, uh, there's no get rich quick schemes. Uh, I, I never did figure out how to do the four hour work week kind of thing. You know, it was uh, Tim Ferriss doesn't do uh, it either. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, no hype involved. You know, it was, it was, it was hard work. It was, it was prudent planning and it was luck. You know, you, you get lucky as well. But, um, I, I started off, um, you know, always working as a kid. Uh, I, I had my first job, I think at 15, my brother got me a job at a restaurant that he worked at. I started, uh, you know, delivering room service and busing tables. And, um, I remember just as a kid on weekends, I'd make, I don't know, three, $400, uh, and that was that was in the seventies, and that was when uh, in the mid seventies when when three hundred dollars was was a lot of money. <laughs> um, and I just make that taking people, you know, coffee in for breakfast uh, to their you know delivering room service, and uh, you know just just getting tips every every time I I I ran a room, I'd get you know a dollar, five dollars, ten dollar tips, and uh, and I just learned about I learned about money from that. I learned how to how to not not spend it and. Uh, and what that could do for him. And I, I, 
you know, we talked a little bit about that, that white collar corporate America thing. I was always more in, I was always chasing my freedom as opposed to chasing money. You know, I didn't really want to have the BMW. So everybody looked at me and said, wow, that guy's driving a BMW. I wanted to be doing whatever it was that I wanted to do at that particular minute. Um, and so I was more interested in my personal freedom than I was in, in being flashy or showy. So I found that, that, you know, money doesn't buy you happiness, but it does buy you freedom. And it, it does if you, if you use it the right way. Right. And, and so that's, I think that's what I was driven to. Uh, but I didn't know how to get it. As I said, I, I thought you kind of had to go down that, that white collar path, get a college degree, go work for a big company. Um, and, and I wasn't, um, I'm, I'm just a, a middle of the road person. You know, I didn't do that well in high school. Uh, when I was in high school, I knew that I, I wasn't ready for college. I, I had no idea what I wanted to study. didn't know what I wanted to do. Wanted to go see the world. You know, I ended up, I, I joined the Marine Corps and, uh, and I, tr- I traveled the world for four years with the Marine Corps, deployed every, every six months, uh, learned a great deal. And, uh, and more than anything, learned, learned being in the Marine Corps that I, that I wanted to uh, not do that for the rest of my life. Sure. And, uh, you know, that, so that, that put me on the path. And then when I was 22, I went to college. I was more mature at that point. I, um, again, knew, knew about finances. I had money, money saved up. I, I worked through high school. I joined Army ROTC cause that gave me more money. I met my, my wife in college at the same time. She was also older. She was, uh, she was the same age as I was. She had waited four years to go to school and, uh, she, you know, we both bankrolled her, you know, uh, cash flowed her own college. We didn't have any, any student loan debts, uh, got married while we were still in school, graduated debt free. Uh, just, just live that kind of a lifestyle where it was, how do I, you know, you, you said a little bit ago about, uh, you know, the formula to it about saving is I, I say that the secret to wealth is you, you have to earn, you have to save and you have to invest and you have to do it in those three steps. So you start by right. earning and you really don't start earning until you're probably in your thirties, unless you're one of these, you know, Tim nope. Ferriss guys, but America won't pay you anything until you're 40. Mm-hmm. They, 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 for whatever reason, you talk about uh, discrimination and things. There's there's definitely big age discrimination. I know when I turned 40, I, people took me a lot more seriously. I you know I was saying the same dumb things that I said when I was 20, but they they took me serious when I was 40. Um, so so it's really it's about it's it's about earning. You have you have to get that earnings part down first. You can't. Everybody thinks they're a saver. Everybody wants to know how do I how do I invest this two thousand dollars, and that's not the point. The point is learning how to earn, how to earn it first. And whether you do that through going to college, getting a university degree, or or learning how to fix cars, or learning how to you know write code and program, you have to you have to earn first. And that's, I mean, one of the things that I've learned as a as a financial advisor. Here's one of the things when I was working in the business, is that I got frustrated because when you get compensated based upon selling investments or selling insurance then what happens is a lot of times you're looking at a client and you're saying what would what would i do if i were in this client's position and a lot of times the answer is i probably wouldn't buy stocks i would probably rather invest in earning my income but the challenge was and i, and I would often give this speech to to clients and i would try to encourage them um 
but the challenge, and I would try to encourage them because I, I would see that the best investment is in your earning ability. And most people know that in, they we're taught that in our society, but that means go to college. It doesn't mean go to college. You can go to college and get a college degree and come out with zero earning ability. Uh, or you can go to college and you can come out with a college degree and, and come out with a great earning ability. It has more to do with what you did in college. And if you've actually enhanced your earning ability, it's not just the college degree. It's not the ticket to, to riches that it once was uh, considered to be. Uh, it doesn't mean it's not valuable, but it's not the ticket to riches it once was. But the trouble, the, the frustration that I ran into was I would talk to people about investing in their earning ability and how to do that. But then I had no mechanism for following through, and they had no mechanism for following through for themselves. So just like we make jokes in February about all these failed New Year's resolutions, I would work with clients year after year after year, and I would say, listen, you know, put a little bit into savings, um, but you've got $500 a month available in your, in your cash flow. Why don't we save, say, 200 or 300 but take the other 200 or 300 and invest it in yourself and invest it in your earning ability? But what fr- was frustrating is it got pulled into consumption instead. And I've always found that to be frustrating because I've observed that the people who become wealthy do not become wealthy necessarily because of their specific skill with investing, unless that's their business. They become wealthy because they have the ability to, to earn a high income. And that's where most of our focus should be up front. Absolutely. It's, it's all about the income. Like you mentioned, they have to put that money into reinvesting in themselves, and then they also have to put a large chunk of it into savings, whether that's, you know, and again, I'm someone that believes in savings, so I'm going to tell people save 20, 25% or more. Um, you know, somebody comes to me, that, and I hear this all the time, whether, you know, whether they're 20 years old or whether they're 40 years old, they have $2,000 and they want to know, you know, where to invest it. Don't. And generally, and yeah, that's what I tell them. Absolutely, don't invest it. Most of them, that's all they have is two thousand dollars. And I say, don't. I don't care if you put it under your mattress. I don't care if you put it in a in a in the in a bank account. Whatever you want to do with it, put it someplace where you're not going to spend it. And then, don't worry about trying to you know buy Google and and get a ten or fifteen uh, you know percent capital gain. You're currently working. Put your money aside. You can, if you're if you're under fifty, you can put uh, fifty five hundred dollars. In, a, in an IRA, in a Roth or, or, an, or a traditional IRA. If you do that, at the end of the year, you'll have the 5500 you just saved plus the 2000 you didn't spend. You have $7,500. Where are you going to get a return in your investment like that? You know, this, you're looking at your net worth. You're not looking at you know, getting 10% investing in a stock or some mutual fund or something. Mm-hmm. Look at your overall net worth. How are you going to get to $7,500 next year? You're going to do it by saving the 2000 you have now. And then, and then adding another fifty five hundred to it, it's in a tax advantaged account. Um, if you're if you're you know prudent and disciplined, and you put that away, when, when you're as old as me, you'll have a million plus. Like you know, I, I, as as long as you are prudent, sure, uh, you will find that that time value of money, it is true. What you read in the books about, um, you know, about interest rates and, and and how your money can compound over time, and if you're in a tax advantaged account where you're, where you're not having to constantly pay taxes on it. That that is all absolutely true. I told you when I read Thomas Stanley's book and I was thirty five, I had about a seventy thousand dollar net worth, seventy, seventy three thousand dollars, something like that. Mm-hmm. I had about I had about thirty thousand dollars in a in a four oh one K plan and I had about, you know, another thirty some thousand dollars or so equity in my home. And and you know, that's what I had when I was thirty five years old. And I was able to really magnify that by by putting more money away, by by when I when I made more by not spending it, by keep rolling it over, letting it compound. 
So then moving on from the earning and the saving, then when you get to investing, what do you usually encourage, where do you encourage people to start? Yeah. And, uh, and it depends whether it's someone that's coming to me that wants me to manage their money or it's somebody that wants to do it on their own. If it's somebody that wants to do it on their own, I tell them they have to go with, with whatever talents they have and abilities. I personally was able to make money in the stock market because I have a talent for that. It's, it's my interest. I studied it. I, um, you know, I, I made it kind of went from my part-time job to being my full-time job. Uh, other people can do it with real estate. You know, I, I have no luck with real estate. I, I, I own my own home. That's all I own. I'm not interested in being a landlord. Um, you know, I don't understand, uh, you know, commercial real estate. That That's just not where I excel. But I've met plenty of people that have made money on that. So, I mean, that's their talent. They can do that. I know, I know, you know, I've met many, a, uh, you know, even just a, a, a blue collar guy that, that owns, uh, you know, five or, uh, you know, 10 or 20 just small little starter homes that he, he rents out for investment property you know, made millions on that. I just wasn't interested in going that path. So I think you're either going to make money trading it in stocks. You're going to make money in, in real estate and not necessarily flipping it, but, but owning it and, um, and getting the income stream from renting it. And then the other way is to, uh, is to have a small business. Uh, and it, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to be a, a revolutionary, you know, Silicon Valley startup, uh, a flower shop, uh, you know, uh, I mentioned the automotive stuff. Um, I have met people in all walks of life that uh, that have a small business that uh, that have done very well. They get they get the tax advantage from it. They uh, they build their lifestyle around it, and uh, that's that's definitely the way to go. And you know, in my so in my later years, that's what I've combined. I combine my my love with investing to creating my own investment firm. It seems like one of the things I would like us to to see come back to the. U.S. American conversation is a wider view of investment opportunities. And I like to put myself in other people's and other, I love to travel. And I always like to think, uh, you know, okay, if I woke up and I were, I have some friends in Nigeria and Kenya, and I think, okay, if I woke up and all of a sudden I found myself living in Nigeria or Kenya and I didn't have any money, what would I do? Uh, that was why, you know, I recorded a show on how I would become a multimillionaire if I were living or if I were working a minimum wage job at Walmart. And I, I thought of the idea and I thought that would be fun. But I gained more. I don't I don't know if anyone from that listening to the show learned a lot. I learned more by thinking that through for myself than than anything else and thinking, OK, what would I do? How would I do it? Knowing what I know now, how would I approach that? And the same thing with if I were on the streets of Nigeria. I can I guarantee if I were living on the streets of Nigeria, I wouldn't be uh, I wouldn't be thinking about how can I buy stocks in the U.S. That wouldn't be appropriate. I would start by getting my life stabilized. So that would mean uh, if I didn't have enough food, I mean, the, <laughs> it's funny. In our culture, we don't think about the practical realities of life. But if I didn't have enough food, I would start by making sure that my family had food. I would work on getting shelter figured out, you know, these basic things of life. And then you look for a way to convert your your energy every day into a useful endeavor to build up more capital. And then you're always thinking and saying, where can I deploy this capital? But what happens is that in the U.S., in the US generally when people think about inv investing, they think about stocks or they think about real estate, and very few think about business. But I would love to see people incorporate in a self-examination of what are my skills and talents and abilities. So that's what you said, hey, I'm going to combine a business running an investment advisory firm with an interest in a skill, 
I've done this over time. And that's where you combine those. I'd love to. I'd love to. I'd love it if a client walked in and said, "I'm thinking about buying a Dunkin' Donuts franchise because I've recognized that there's not one here. I'm also looking at buying a hotel franchise." And I'm also considering purchasing this single-family house, and I've had my eye on this, uh, you know, this blue-chip uh, stock that I really think is undervalued right now. You know, Joshua, what should I do? But we don't seem to think that way in our culture. Uh, I wonder if you have any comment on that. That's how I think, and that's what that's what I would like to see enhanced is us to think. You know, the person with two thousand bucks, the reason they need to keep that two thousand bucks available is because likely what's going to happen is they're going to need to switch from one one job to another job, or move across the state, or move across the country, and you need that two thousand dollars as insurance between you and you know needing to go on food stamps because your cupboard is empty, or because of needing to buy a moving truck to move across the country. Uh, that's going to be a better investment. But if you don't have the $2,000 to pay for the moving truck and the gasoline to get your family across the country, then you may wind up putting that on a credit card. Then you wind up in a cycle of debt because you didn't have a buffer in life. Yeah, that's how you're living paycheck to paycheck. And the $2,000 should be their their emergency fund or just their living fund uh, so that they don't have to when, – when the transmission goes out or the tire blows or whatever, they're going to go put on their credit card and – Three months later, something else happens, and you know, a year down the road, they have twenty thousand dollars in unsecured debt, and they don't understand it. Um, what you said is, is exactly the way I, I try and tell you, young people in particular. It's too late to tell somebody that's, you know, fifty that, but um, maybe not too late. But uh, I try and emphasize that to kids whenever I speak before groups or talk with with young people. I emphasize that on my website. I have a section on building wealth, and it's not about investing. It's all about the things you just talked about. It's I, I talk about a three-stage process. The first stage is is being a um, an apprentice. It's it's the whole concept of being an immigrant. My my grandfather was a, an Italian immigrant. He came over uh, came over multiple times, but the last time he came over was right after World War One. He had a third-grade education. He spent his whole life as a laborer. But uh, but he had that immigrant mentality of of working hard, saving his money, you know, owning his own home, raising his family, uh, not being indebted to anybody. His personal freedom was very important to him as well. And and he wanted you know he wanted to own his own property. He wanted to be able to garden his own, um, you know, his own his own piece of land, kind of homestead his own land. And and people say, oh, you know, you can't do that today. You can do that. I don't care. You, you look at the people that come here as immigrants. And the people that are coming here today as immigrants, as, as well as the people that came 100 years ago, they have that they have that drive and that desire that you know unfortunately a lot of native-born people don't have. And I'm not talking about the immigrants that are coming across for you know for free health care or or to get on welfare benefits. I'm talking about the people that come here with a desire to work. Um, you know, I, I heard somebody say one time that. You know, there, aren't, there, there's, there may not ever be enough jobs, but there's always plenty of work, mm-hmm. and that's what, that's what the immigrants do. You know, they come over and they find out a way to work, and and you, and that's what you start off with. You start off with work to generate an income, but on that apprenticeship phase, like you had mentioned, investing in yourself, you don't just become a a, a wage slave, or or just um, you know counting on your employer to to be your benefactor. You need to figure out how do you get to that next step? How do I invest in myself? Right. So instead of instead of just being a laborer, instead of just being the guy that's digging a ditch, I'm the guy that learns how to be the building contractor or I'm the guy that that uh, you know saves up enough money so I can buy a backhoe and I can I can you know re- replace 20 of these immigrant guys with with me and my one backhoe. That's that's the path you have to take and it's all about that first stage. Is is getting an education, and again, it doesn't matter whether you're, you know, whether you're a cabinet maker or whether you're a, um, 
you know, a cardiologist. You, you have to get that training period, and it's your your income is ultimately going to depend on. Um, I like to break things down in, into simple equations, right? We talked about the the wealth thing. And wealth is a matter of of earning plus saving plus investing. The income you, that you earn is is a matter of the time it takes to train for for your particular occupation, mm-hmm. the the demand that there is for for whatever you're doing, and the skill level that you take. It's just those three things. Uh, so a cardiologist has to train for you know decades and decades, and that's why he makes you know, a million dollars a year because he had to train so long to get to that point. If you're working at, uh, you know, Burger King or McDonald's, they can train you in 45 minutes. Right. So, so, so that's why they're paying you minimum wage. It isn't, it isn't that they're mean. It isn't that they're cruel. It isn't that they're the 1%, you know, it's just that that's what your time is worth. You could be trained in 45 minutes. Um, there is a demand. There is a demand for fast food workers. So, so I mean, you have the demand part of the equation, but it only takes 45 minutes to train you. And then no matter how good of a skill level you have, you're just not going to be able to make more than you know, $10, $12 an hour. It's just in that environment, that's all, all you're going to have. But even if you're working at that level, if you start out at seven fifty or whatever minimum wage is and you work your way up to ten or twelve dollars, you get to be maybe in a, a team leader or assistant manager or something at one of those fast food places – you can get to the point where you either get to manage, uh, you know, a regional area, or someday you can own your own, you own your own franchise. And again, those are the the middle class millionaires. Those are the millionaire next door. I know, I know people in fast food industry that are making, you know, two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and sure. they and they st- they started out flipping burgers. Right. It's one of the things that I learned. I had a client who was uh, an upper level management with McDonald's, and he's and the thing he talked to me about that I had never been aware of is he talked about the McDonald's University program, like what they have as far as their training program, and he started uh, as a frontline uh, a frontline cook, exactly exactly that, and but he worked his way through their training program, and he was doing very well, and he had an excellent an excellent career. Um, that I really like how you. Divided that out: time, demand, and skill. I, I haven't, I haven't formulated that myself as far as being able to say here are the here are the three things. But the amount of time needed, because uh, you're absolutely right, an anesthesiologist uh, or a cardiac surgeon is generally going to make a, a higher wage uh, than is a general practitioner. But that's because they also have another five or six years in school. Uh, the demand, and that's the one that I don't see a lot of people. Uh, like talk about is is no you know sit down and look at where is the demand for labor going you know the demand for I hate I hate picking on fast food but it's it's so ubiquitous in our culture I'll do it the demand for burger flippers I I, I was going to profile this on the show last week I just saw somebody invented a and they're working on inventing uh, a machine that will do every stage of cooking making cooking creating and assembling the ha- and wrapping the hamburger and so they've created a robot that is able to uh, uh, and I'll, I'll find it and link to it in the show notes they've, but they've created a robot that is is able to uh, make the complete finished product of this very good looking robot excuse me of this very good looking hamburger and so I look at that and I say, if you are working in something that is f- straightforward and production line, you are going to repl- be replaced in the next 15, 20 years. As costs go up for workers, then uh, machines will replace the workers. 
so we've got to be looking at where is the demand going. The demand for that is going to the person who can work on the machines and b- fix the machines and program the machines and maybe even de- de- design the machines. And then, yeah, the personal skill, because skill does does come into play. There may be a business that is very difficult to learn. There may be a demand for it, but you may just not have the personal skill or be able to, to accumulate the personal skill or have the you may not have the, the raw talent, the raw ability, uh, any of those things to actually develop the skill. I like your formula. Yeah, on the on the automation side, like I say, I spent you know twenty some years as a as an industrial sales guy. So I've been in factories all over the world, and uh, you know people say manufacturing in the U.S. is dead, and that's not true. I mean, there's we're producing more in the U.S. than we've ever produced. But you go inside a factory today versus going into a factory even you know twenty years ago when I started, there are no people there. The only the only people in those factories, for the most part, they're either doing the very rudimentary um, you know end packaging or assembly work or something like that. Uh, but but most people are are the engineers and the line and the line staff that are that are maintaining the equipment. You know they they have the robots that that palletize everything, um, that do all the precision work. Uh, there's been so much hype and things about uh, you know th- like three dimensional printing in the last right. few years. But I um, mean you just look at at what uh, CNC um, you know routers did over the last. 15 years, just right. pheno- phenomenal amount of, of work that they've taken out. But uh, automation, by the way, now we talk about that, and that becomes an in- investment opportunity. So on the downside, you say, well, hey, that may take some people out of the market from employment, but what companies can I invest in that are in the automation side? Who's going to be wrapping those hamburgers? Right. Who's going to be doing the, the driverless cars? Um, you know, they talk about things like Uber and that. And I mean, imagine not only an Uber where you can uh, – where you can, you know, get 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 a, a sedan to come and pick you up, but it, it, now it's it's not even a driver anymore. It's just a, a remote car. Um, that that will happen someday. And then there's the, look for those companies that are automating. I uh, uh, th- those are the kind of opportunities I look for. As far as that formula goes, I mean that's those three things. If you if you if you particularly as a young person, if you if you look at that and you look at that demand side, uh, and not only on that on again the, the the low end, the hamburger flipper side, but even on the high end. Um, you know, you may be very interested in, uh, you know, medieval literature or, uh, you know, Elizabethan, uh, plays or something, but there's no demand for it. Right. So it doesn't matter in that case, it doesn't matter how great you are at, at writing poetry and it doesn't matter how many PhDs you have, how many years you studied. If there's no demand for what you do, you're still going to be, you know, poor. So that's, that's where that equation comes in, even for people that, you know, that are maybe on high level jobs. And, you know, and frankly, I think even people like, you know, pharmacists, they mean they they could be under threat in, in coming years. Yeah, I don't think there's any industry that is uh, insulated from change. And you can either be and this is the problem is because uh, going theoretical, but I'm, I'm interested because you probably have some some opinions on this, but if you, I've been thinking a lot, I'm planning a whole series on education. And part of that is going to be the technical financial planning side of here is how you pay for college. Here's what the things that everyone knows about five, two nines, ESAs, blah, blah, blah. Here's some like really interesting ways that you can get similar things, but then let's step back and let's talk about it. And I'm going to, I'm not going to start with the financial planning because the biggest with the technical financial planning, because the biggest mistake I see is people always just ask, how should I pay for college instead of, all the pre precursor questions, but one of the things I've been thinking a lot about education for my son. I have a one a one year old son because you you have children, right, John? 
Oh, I have six. You you want one? I'll give you a couple more. <laughs> well, we'll see. We'll try, who knows? Maybe we'll catch up with you in the in the future. In, in fact, down the road, you need to invite me back, and we need to have a show on big families because I understand you're you're one of seven. I so am. I'm the youngest of seven. Someday, let's come back and talk about about the economics of big families. Okay. Well, maybe. Yeah, I would like that. That would be great. Um, I love I love coming from a big family. It's it it was a it was amazing and and who knows how many how many uh, I don't know how many who knows how big our family will be. Right now we have one and we're thrilled for the one, uh, and we hope for more in the future. Uh, but uh, where I was going was is that uh, I don't I don't remember where I was going. <laughs> you're, you're talking about education, right? 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 Okay. So I've been thinking about. There we go. Thank you. Uh, you saved me. Uh, I've been thinking about like what do I want my son to know, and what do I want my son to learn? And the thing that just seems so hopeless to me is the entire idea of primary school education, the way that it's taught right now. This idea that in you know what's it, twelve years? That in, the idea that in twelve years that we can design a course of study that's going to help a student to be able to have job skills available for the market. That's what most people assume uh, schooling is about. Is about job skills, and that's what they even say college is about job skills. Well, we sit back and look at it. And I'm I'm only twenty nine years old, and so I graduated from high school in two thousand and three. So that makes me that's eleven years ago. When I graduated from high school, iPhones didn't exist iPods didn't exist, Android didn't exist, apps didn't exist, computers existed, but they were very different. And if I look back, I don't know what the statistics are on this, but the, but the, the huge majority of the fastest growing job and career opportunities did not exist 10 years ago. So how could I ever sit down and say I could design for my son an education that would go, would 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 give him skills because all of those skills are obsolete. The only thing I can hope to accomplish and the whole point of education should be to develop him to be able to to teach himself anything he needs to do because then if I can te- anything he needs to learn because if I can succeed in teaching him to be a self-learner learner an autodidact then he can then apply that to whatever it be whether it's you know sewing up hearts as a cardiac surgeon whether it's fixing the robots that are sewing up hearts or whether it's uh, you know investing his money I can teach him that. And what seems such a travesty to me is it seems to me like that's what's taken away from the youth of today, is that it seems to me that instead of giving somebody the skills of learning to teach themselves what they need to do, the majority of our population is basically dumbed down and taught that learning is stupid, that nobody wants to learn, that it's boring, that nobody should care. And then there are very few people that escape. And then those people that escape end up educating themselves. And so the gap between the rich and the poor grows greater and greater and greater uh, because of the fact that there are very few people who escape you know, through, that, uh, through the system and continue to be self-learners and continue to go on and learn. It's a big deal for me. And I, I still can't figure out, you know, how it all works. And I've got some ideas as far as for how to teach my son, but it just, it, the world seems so backwards to me. Well, you know, we're, we're institutionalized because people, uh, people make a living on, on forcing kids to sit through, t- you know, 12 years of school and the whole, the whole university system. I mean, there's a lot of people whose paychecks are dependent on that. And so I think that's the reason it is the way it is, but it's going to change. You can learn between Google and YouTube. You can learn almost anything and you you don't need to sit in a school anymore. I I would encourage you to teach your son 
you know, three things, and they're, they're what we've already talked about. How to think. He needs to th- how to learn how to think for himself, how to, you know, how to basically educate himself. He needs to learn how to work, how to have the discipline to work, and then the discipline to save. And with those three things, no matter what the economic conditions are or what changes, people will be able to adapt and, and be able to, to, uh, to work through it. And, and all the things you mentioned, you know, I think the same way about you know, when I graduated from high school in 1979, I mean, there was nothing then. There were no cell phones. There, were, there, there was not even a, a concept of an Internet. Computers were basically just dumb terminals. Um, but that's the beauty of it. That's, that's why I'm optimistic. I mean, it's bad and you, you can point to a lot of bad things. You can look at the, the $17 trillion debt. You can look at the you know, four and a half trillion dollars on the federal reserve balance sheet, all those reasons to be pessimistic. But on the other side, it's never been a better time to be alive. There are so many great opportunities for the young and the old, you know, for anybody that's willing to do those three things I talked about, you know, educate themselves, save and work the world is wide open to you. Um, Even with school, you know, we talked about, I I graduated, uh, it, it, it cost me a lot of money and time and effort, but I graduated debt free from college. I have six kids so far. Three of my children were old enough to graduate from college and two of them have master's degrees. That's awesome. Good for them. Debt free. And dad didn't pay for it. They, They figured out a way to pay for it themselves. I paid for one semester of all that education I forked over enough money for one semester, and since I know my kids never listen to my podcast, I can I can say this on the on the air here. <laughs> I I raised them with that in mind that you know most people are raised you're going to go to school. Okay, I I raised them that yeah you should go to school and get an education, but I but the, I took the next step and said, and you're going to pay for it. And it was like you're going to school and you're going to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And and it was just they just heard that for you know 18 years of their life, and so. Um, I actually didn't think they would. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I put money aside and stuff, and I thought that they would have come to and asked for money, but they didn't. And so I, I didn't give it to them because I didn't ask for it. Uh, tell me more. Teach me about – so I have a show that I've been working on an outline as far as my ideas uh, of how – like my ideas for training my son with money. I've got a few ideas uh, that I think are, are interesting, but I'm at the very front end, and I haven't seen it proved out. Tell me more about some of the ways that you've worked with your children to try to encourage them and train them toward financial success. What have you implemented? What have you done over the years? What's worked? What hasn't worked? You know, I like the idea of uh, of making them wait for things or making them save up their own money for things. Uh, and even once they save up their money, whether they get it through an allowance or whether they they worked or they got birthday money or whatever, making them wait a, a certain period of time for whatever they want, because generally you can make them wait 24 hours or seven days or you know whatever whatever depends on how, how cruel of a parent you are. You know that you make them wait for something. They generally don't want it and they forgot about it and they're on to something else and so the, the the clock restarts. So I think that's a great thing to do. Is it you know if you have a if you have a if you have a five year old and he gets his birthday money and he wants to go buy whatever whatever I don't even know what the hot toys are anymore. He wants to go buy a toy um, or an app or whatever five year olds buy. You make since he's five years old, you make him wait whatever five hours, five days. You know, five weeks. You kind of use their birthday as a as a means. You know, generally twenty four hours is a, is a good starting point, even for older kids. But you just make them wait because, again, most of this stuff is fleeting. They really don't want it, and that that teaches them to to not have that impulse. And that's where that's where people spend all their money, right? I mean, they people are rational. I mean, that's why I don't personally. It was divert a little bit here. That's why I don't believe in the rational stock market theory. Mm-hmm. People. 
people are not rational. I don't care how much information is available to everybody. And I was getting a massage the other day, and the, and the lady's telling me how she's investing in the stock and stuff. It's not based on any rational standpoint, right? Mm-hmm. She, she's investing in this because she she heard a you know a tip on CNBC or something. So people are not rational, and uh, and that's how they get all this credit card debt. I mean, they don't go out to get twenty, thirty thousand dollars worth of credit card debt. It's an impulse buy. They they their, their tire blew out, and they have to have a, a new tire. Or they they got a date with this hot chick and they they have to buy dinner that night and, and they don't have any cash so they you know they they got to spend a hundred dollars on dinner and it just it's that impulse if you can, if you can learn to overcome the impulse purchase you'll you'll be way ahead uh, the other things with kids are just to make them understand the value of things because if they if you give them everything even if you give it to them you you just still need to relate to them what that costs you know you know dad had to work three hours in order to get that or 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 you doing your chores, you know, you had to shovel snow or cut the grass or, or whatever. You had to do that for, for, you had to shovel snow for three days in order to, to buy, you know, whatever you wanted to buy. And if you instill that in them when they're little and you let them be part of your family discussions, you know, when you and your wife are talking about, you know, paying the bills or buying a car or something like that, you, you let them listen into those conversations. And so that, so that they understand that, that mom and dad, uh, you know, they're not an infinite source of wealth and that they're, uh, their scarcity and that they have to, you know, save and be frugal in order to get the things that they want. And, 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 you know, I'm always sarcastic with my kids. I mean, they'll, they'll, they'll again, point out, you know, that, well, that guy over there is driving a, a BMW or this, you know, this guy has a boat or has a bigger house or whatever. And I would, I'd find a sarcastic way to kind of tease my kids about it, but I'd always come back to the point of saying, you know, that guy probably doesn't really have any money. You know, when you get right down to it, and, and and I know over the years, my, my kids have gotten older. They've come back to me and said, you know, Dad, you were right. That that guy really was broke or, you know, yeah, you know, that guy really did lose his house in 2008 or 2009 when, when the housing market fell apart. Um, so you have to not, you know, we don't talk about, you know, what, sex politics and religion kind of thing. Right. Um, people don't, they don't talk about money. You need to talk about money. You need to instill that in your kids. Play games with them. You know, we'd play the, the Monopoly kind of games where, uh, uh, where they they're just dealing with fake money, but they they uh, they can see what they can and can't buy. I was just talking to my my 14 year old daughter the other day. She was studying uh, inflation in in school. They're teaching her about inflation, and we were mm-hmm. talking about that. And um, and we did we we I answered her question based on Monopoly money, and she you know she got it right away. I said you know if you're playing Monopoly, and because we're talking about how the how the how the money grows, how the government inflates money, mm-hmm. and how it's worthless. Right. So we're saying you know if if everybody's playing Monopoly and you all have five hundred dollars. You know, she got that, that everybody has equal amount of money. I said, well, well what if you had $10,000 and everybody else only had $500? She's like, oh, that's great. I could buy Park Place and I could buy all these things on the Monopoly board. I said, yeah, but now what if everybody has $10,000? She says, well, yeah, I'm back to where I was at before. And so she, you know, she just got that, hey, that's the way money works. That's the way government promises everybody all these services and then they print money to, to pay for it. Mm-hmm. And then the, the end result is nobody has anything. Right. So yeah. just just play those games with your kids, um, and again, as they you know you put that expectation in them. As my kids got older, uh, you know they always had jobs when they when they went to school. Like I say, for the you know they they, they either funded their their uh, their educations through ninety uh, percent of it was through through working. Uh, a couple of men ended up they did get academic scholarships because they excelled in a particular area or not. But but most of it was from working, and they they cleaned toilets, they went door to door selling pest control. You know, they worked in restaurants. Um, they just worked. They worked and they saved their money. 
I'm glad to hear you say expectations. I, I, I think a lot about that. And in the same way that you had those expectations with your kids, uh, you know, my dad had, the, you're talking about big family, big family economics. Uh, my father always told us the same thing. He's like, you know, listen, uh, if you want to go to college, I think that's great. I think you probably should consider it because in our world today, it's one of those things that uh, it just in some ways is necessary and it's mandatory. Uh, but you're on your own as far as paying for it. So don't expect me to pay for it. So you better get good grades so you can get someone else to pay for it. Otherwise, you're going to be working really hard to pay for it. And I'll contribute. You know, If you're in school, I'll allow you to live at home. You can live here rent-free while you're in school. Uh, and that'll be my way to contributing, but I'm not going to pay your $30,000 tuition bill. And every single one of my siblings, uh, all with the exception of one who she has a, a technical, uh, technical degree, um, all of us have college degrees, and all of us took different paths. But several of my siblings had their got paid to go to college just because they worked hard and they kept good grades and they got plenty of scholarships. I had some scholarships. I paid some. I paid my own way, but I never expected to go to dad and say, "Hey, I need thirty grand. Uh, can you do it?" And I never felt like that was a hardship. And looking back on it, you know, you can find I'm finding some academic research to illustrate that he always his opinion uh, was that uh, if I paid for school, I would value it more. And I think he was right. I found some academic research supporting that, although it's not a ma- I've seen it both ways. It's not a major, you know, statistical difference, but there's a, a a small difference. But I think about this in terms of things like savings rates. And I think, you know, I admire parents who teach their children, look, you know, when you earn a dollar, you're going to save 10 cents of it and you're going to give 10 cents away. But I think, why not set the expectation when you earn a dollar, you're going to save 50 cents of it, or you're going to save, you're going to, li- you're going to, you're, excuse me, you're going to spend 50 cents of it and you're going to save 50 cents of it, or you're going to spend 25 cents of it and save 75% of it. Uh, or I, I found one book and I'm going to try to have them on the show. It's on my reading list. I haven't read their book yet, but their expectation that they set for their children was that they would be able to purchase their own house mortgage free. Uh, by the time they were uh, in their early 20s. And I think they have had either two or three sons who have done that. And all of them have started their life in their early 20s with a paid-for house based upon the money that they saved over time. So I wonder a lot about the expectations because there's a you could probably go overboard with that. Uh, you know, you're only going to spend two cents of your, your dollar and you're going to save 98 cents. That's probably a little extreme. But <laughs> children are probably more capable than we give them credit for. Yeah, and I try and be a real libertarian in my own life with things and and you 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 can't with kids i mean you got to rein in kids they have to have boundaries because mm-hmm. <clears throat> they're kids right and they, they, they just they, they, they'd end up dead if they didn't have any boundaries mm-hmm. <clears throat> but um but i've tried to be even libertarian with my kids and, and and teach them those things particularly say you know when you're 18 you can do whatever you want mm-hmm. but uh but you should consider these things right you should you should understand the way these things work and if you want to waste and blow all your money you know that's fine but but look where you're going to be because dad's not going to help you. Dad's dad's not going to, you know, send you to dental school and, and put you in a BMW. Mm-hmm. If you want to do that, you need to fund it yourself. I don't care if you go to dental school. I don't care if you have to drive a BMW, but you're going to pay for it. Dad's not paying for it. Right. So, uh, you know, you have to you have to do do that with them. Um, and again, make it fun. Make it, you know, k- kids love to earn money. They they, sure. they like to earn money. I, I wish I would have kept track. I guess had I known one day that I would have my own financial business, I would have kept better records. Um, but I remember my one, one of my kids when they were 19, they had like over $35,000 saved up Wow! at, at 19. And I, I'm sure that's probably 
more than the average American has a net, a net worth. And this is this is a kid. And this, I got to say, my kids are not you know like me, right? I'm their dad. They can't be rocket scientists. <laughs> they're just they're just average kids. I mean, they're just people that that uh, that came from a large family. They knew they had responsibilities, and they uh, you know for the most part. Uh, you know, did what they did what they were raised to do. Those expectations they go both ways too. If I was out blowing my money, um, setting a bad example, my kids wouldn't have learned to save, right? right? So my wife, my wife and I had to not be hypocrites. We had to live the same life that we were teaching them about. Absolutely. Um, and 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 you know, again, people say, well, I had to go in debt to buy a car, or I had to go in debt to, to do this or that. You don't have to, right? Sure. Yeah, I, I've I have owned. I got to think about this so I don't tell a lie. I have only ever had one car payment in my life. I'm I'm 53 years old right now. Mm-hmm. I've had one car payment in my entire life, one, just one. Right. And you know, and 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 even now, right? I could I could probably lease a car and write it off in my business and and save a thousand dollars or you know some tax gimmick scheme. I just buy the car, you know. I just, sure. I just pay cash for it and and keep it for fifteen years. I don't worry about writing it off or depreciating it, or I don't get all wrapped up in trying to, you know, be be what pound wise and penny foolish or whatever mm-hmm. penny penny wise and pound foolish. Um, but I think you just have to you have to set those expectations for yourself. You know, you and your spouse or your partner, or whatever. You just got to say this is this is what our budget is. This is what we're going to do. We're not going to. And people say, well, how do you how do you pay cash for a car? You must be rich. Well, no. I told you when I was 35 years old, my whole net worth was you know $70,000, and I had a stay-at-home wife. At that time, I had four kids, I guess. Um, we had to save and scrimp and make ends meet just like everybody else, and, and, and I didn't drive a new car. That was the point. I didn't go out and buy – you know, I didn't go out and buy a Suburban for $40,000 because I knew I couldn't afford it. I knew that someday – I wanted to uh, I wanted to be where I'm at today, and so you know I bought an old used station wagon and I drove it for a while until it fell apart, and then I had saved my money and bought something better. Uh, for a, I think you mentioned a, a minivan. You know, for a family, uh, for anybody, a minivan. I mean, they're ugly, they're not cool, but a minivan a minivan is like the most economical car you can own or operate. They're awesome. They're awesome. They 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 they're not very expensive. The the bang you get for your buck, you know, you can put either a lot of people in it. You can haul a lot of things. Uh, they last forever. The maintenance on them is uh, of the minivans I've owned over the years. I think I've had one bad apple in the whole bunch. I mean, most of them I just change the oil, put tires on them, and they run until you know they they just fall apart. I, I mentioned earlier the expedition that I bought, and uh, I I I bought the expedition, and I'm glad I did. And then after I had it for a while, I just started hating it. And I got over that whole stupid, like, self-confidence issue that I had. And I just hated it because I recognized it's like this SUV does nothing well. It does everything in a mediocre manner, and it does nothing well. Uh, the only reason, you know, if, if, if I needed to have a four-wheel drive vehicle that could pull a big trailer and haul some people, then the SUV would have been ideal. But it just it didn't have enough space. It didn't have a lot of space. If I put the third row up, then I, you know, I didn't have any luggage space. And so I was so happy to, to sell it. It was a 2006 Expedition. The day it sold, I was thrilled. And then I took the money, and I found a 2007 minivan for 5000 bucks, And it was a, that car was awesome. And I told my wife, we're driving home. I think we bought it a couple of years ago. And I said, I'm probably the only 27-year-old male in the United States of America that is so thrilled 
to be driving a minivan because this is the best vehicle ever. It's comfortable, gets great gas mileage. I've got loads of room. I can carry way more stuff than I ever could with the Expedition. I can still haul a trailer, just not a very big one. And I live in Florida. What do I need a four-wheel drive vehicle for? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, one, uh, one area that I wanted to just ask you and then because I thought it'd be interesting and then let's go to investment to the investment business and uh, uh, if that's okay you're, are you doing okay on time you have a few more minutes I I work myself I have I have all day perfect <laughs> <laughs> that's the that's the beauty of being financially independent <laughs> it's easier to give a little bit more time now than to try to arrange another time and stick to some arbitrary time limit uh, you mentioned earlier uh, you were talking about your Italian immigrant grandparents and you were talking about that he was homesteading his land and now the what the title of your podcast is wealth steading is that what you're talking about is this idea of homesteading is that yes. where that name comes from yeah it, it does yeah stead you know stead i think is old english for farm but you know it, it's the root word of things like steady or steadfast and i wanted to teach people to uh to wealth stead to you know we're not necessarily all going to go back to the land and you know get 40 acres and a mule but we can get forty thousand dollars in an IRA and and use that to uh, to get our financial independence. Because because again, it's all it's all about the freedom. It's about the independence. It's interesting because I actually own a domain uh, and I had thought about starting another podcast when I when I wasn't able to do this show while I was working in the financial services industry. I had thought about starting a a podcast called uh, South Florida Homestead. And I love that word homesteading. And the thing I love about it is I wish it's a word – I think it's a word that to me has a lot of practical applications for wealth. And I can apply it in a lot of ways. But the way I think about it is that if you think about like homesteaders, what they were doing is they were going out. And when they were – you know, whether it was Oklahoma land rush or, or your immigrant of Italian grandfather, but the, the guy that was going out to Oklahoma – he went out there and he bought, you know, his. My grandfather had a uh, had a section. So what was that? He had a, no, he had a quarter section, which I think was 160 acres. Uh, that was originally a, a homestead. Uh, so if you had your 160 acres or your 600 and what is it, 640 40 acres, I think, as a section, uh, or whatever, 48, whatever you had your land. The thing that you were looking for from the land was. Uh, you were looking for the land to produce for you, to produce the needs of your life. And so one of the things that I think about is how can we apply that in a modern era to our living situation and to our housing? And it seems silly to me that we pay lots and lots of money for a house, and this house, basically what it does is it keeps the rain off of an empty living room while we're away working, and it keeps the, you know, it keeps the electricity flowing to an air conditioner or a heater that's keeping it hot or cool all day while we're working away at a job that we don't like to stereotype <laughs> the American culture. And I look at it and say, how can, you turn, how can we turn our houses from a consumption item into a, into a production item? And... Uh, Robert Kiyosaki in his book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, he popularized this concept for many people saying your house is not an asset. It's a liability. And although I get his point, clearly he doesn't understand accounting because that's not true. But his point is that the house eats money and it doesn't produce for you. And I think a lot about how can I make my house produce for me? So how can I uh, you know, make it so that it's en- less energy costly, make it less uh, – you know, produce uh, maybe some food, produce some shelter? How can I make it uh, – shelter my business? Uh, how can I make my house an, an item of production instead of consumption? Uh, and that's a concept that I've I've almost never heard explored in the financial world. But to me, it makes a lot of sense, and it's one of those. Con- 
it's one of those things I think a lot about and I'm working a lot about because a good, you know, if you have 2000 bucks, you might not want to go and buy Apple stock, but it might be a good idea to put some insulation in the attic to lower your AC bill by $100. Right, right. And those are things I try and cover and plan to cover on my podcast about because uh, awesome. I know that, you know, I know that 90 percent of my listeners probably they, they don't they, they couldn't engage me as their investment advisor. They don't have the assets to do that. Probably probably 99 percent of them wouldn't have that money, but they all have the opportunity to build their wealth. But, you know, just by what we're talking about, saving, uh, making their home productive, uh, you know, things like having a having a garden. And again, it gets back to uh, I had a big family, so my emphasis is on the family. But if you have a garden, you're not only growing your own food, but if you have children, you're, te- you're, you're teaching the kids, right? You're teaching right. the kids about science. You're teaching the kids about nature. You're teaching the kids about hard work. You're teaching the kids about patience. I mean, so it's it's not that you're stacking your functions like in permaculture. You're just not sure. growing a garden. You're, you're raising kids, too. And um, I also like to think in, in terms of slavery, again, taking that down to a simple equation, what's a slave? A slave is someone that works and 100% of his earnings are taken away from him. He has a place to sleep. He has, a, he, has a, he has food. He's fed. He has a place to sleep. If he gets sick, you know, the slave master doesn't want him to die, so he gives him health care. Uh, but he doesn't get to keep any of his wages. So look at you as a, as a modern-day consumer in America. Are you, you're paying 40% of your income for your house. You know, you're paying 20% of your income for transportation. You're paying 30% of the government in taxes and, and you know, sales taxes, all that kind of stuff, income taxes. At the end of the day, you know, you find out you're worse than a slave because you're, you know, you're living a 120, 130 percent of your income. That's why you're racking up all these credit card bills. So you're you're worse than a slave. You're worse off. Uh, you need to look at your home and look at how can how can it be a refuge for you? How can it be a, a safe place to raise your children? How can it be a place where you, um, you know, you're enjoying it? You're not you're not like you say you're not going to work working 80 hours to pay for your home. You're you're living in your house and uh, and enjoying it. And, and, and by the way, if you can be, a, like we talked about, being a salesman, a, uh, uh, an outside salesman or an entrepreneur or someone, uh, an, uh, a software engineer that can work from home, that's exactly what you want to do. If you're in corporate America and you can figure out a way to somehow telecommute or work out of your home or start your own business and work from your home, you'll be, you'll be miles ahead of the game. Think of, think of all the traffic you won't sit in. Think of all the time you won't be commuting. Think of all the ridiculous meetings you won't be sitting in in your in your office or the time wasted in your cubicle. It really does make a major difference, and the just the name, just even just the word "wage slave," I think is a really valuable word that we don't uh, that we don't. It's a word that we don't think about very much today. And but if you actually go back and you and you look now, I'm not ready to I'm not ready to say this is absolutely true. Uh, because I, I can't prove it, but I made a comment on the on a show last week. I was talking about slavery, and one of the things that I've learned that I I wasn't taught in school, but there was good evidence that in this country, in the awful period of the 19, you know the beginning nineteenth century, when we enslaved human beings, that slavery was decreasing uh, naturally because it was simply too expensive. And that the southern plantation owners were finding that that they could not compete with the northern industrialists because the northern industrialists would say, you come, for, you come work for me. I'll pay you a wage. You're a free man. You know, you're not enslaved, but now you have to pay for your, uh, now you have to pay for your, uh, uh, you know, your housing, your food. You have to take care of all of these things yourselves. And I have read some of the 
letters from that time in the historical record that indicate to me, although again, I'm I can't I wouldn't I'm not ready to say I can prove this, but I've read some of the letters that are in the historical record that show that this was recognized at least by the industrialists and they they recognized this fact. Now whether or not they did it uh, to me that in no way disqualifies uh the horrific nature of enslaving a human being and having a human being under your control. That in no way makes that argument. If you look at the historical record, you do see that many, some slaves, human slaves at that time, had a better relationship with their former master such that after slavery was abolished, they continued working as freedmen where they were earning wages. And it certainly makes you scratch your head sometimes when you look at it and say, you know, how is it that we all live our lives as wage slaves? Now, I'm clarifying again. I am in no way saying, give me an option any time to be enslaved as a human being versus being an employed person and responsible. I will take responsibility every time, and I will fight for every person to have that responsibility. But the challenge is, is that recognizing that we are in that situation, do we use our freedom to free ourselves or do we continue on being used as, to borrow the metaphor of the matrix, a battery for someone else's purposes? Right, yeah. And my understanding of history, my reading of history is, is along your lines, too. Um, even even in the, the way the Constitution was put together, I mean, they were basically trying to put a sunset limit on slavery. They knew it was going to fall apart on its own. We were the only country that had to go to a civil war to, to stop slavery. Britain was able to do it without mm-hmm. going to war. Right. Um, it was falling apart. The, the slaves were getting whiter and whiter because exactly the that was what the southern the southern <laughs> yeah. the, I read it. I read an essay by a historian. He said, "Listen, the southern women were putting an end to it because the the, the slaves again were getting there were some lighter slaves around, and it, it, she and the the wife was saying, this is absolutely not going to happen. We're done with this.'" It, absolutely. I mean, even you read Fre- Frederick Douglass in his in his autobiography. He talks about that. He talks about. Uh, you know how the slave masters. I mean, their kids were getting whiter. I mean, he said he says it right there in his thing, and and uh, um, so slavery was going to going to come to an end, one way or another. Um, and and I guess I guess the point of all that too is like like you said, though, so many people did did stay just like people they stay in these bad situations that they're in now. Um, you know, people stay with alcoholic abusive husbands, right? Because they're just. Uh, what is it, codependent or whatever mm-hmm. the buzzword is for that? I mean, you you have to break yourself away from that. You have to think of yourself as a as a capable individual, someone that that's on this earth for you know you have you have God given talents and abilities, and you're on this earth for a purpose. And you need to say, how can I how can I achieve those things? You know, am I, am I going to ch- achieve them being tied down to this you know uh, six hundred thousand dollar mortgage in this home or you know, sit in this cubicle every day. Is is that what I is that what I was meant to be? Is you know, right. is, is that any better than picking cotton? You know, right, right. And that's I think that's overall what the theme of my show is basically is and is becoming more and more is freedom, and that can be exactly what you said. Freedom can be found in a job. Freedom can be found in entrepreneurship. Freedom can be found in in many ways. But I want all of us to have the sensation and the the the, the feeling of freedom, because then you know it, it's can you ever really be free? Can you? 
I'm not sure how to express what I'm trying to express, but but very few of us have ever been free, and I even recognize this in my life. I've 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 recognized that it's only recently in my life that I've ever had the full knowledge and appreciation and sensation of being free, free to do well and free to screw everything in my life up. Uh, because you know, I worked through okay, high school not really free. I was commanded here, you need to go this college. I voluntarily chose to go to college, but then because I submitted myself to that, then I was uh, I was I needed to work. I needed to do certain things. Corporate world after that worked in the corporate world. I chose and I got a lot of benefit from a job, uh, but I was also under that corporate those corporate laws. Then I became self-employed, working as a financial advisor, and there I was more free than I'd ever been. But yet, I still had all the rules of the financial industry, and it's only now, in the last two months, that I've had an appreciation of what it's like to truly be free. And it's amazing to me that it took me until 29 years old to experience that, uh, that sensation of freedom. And I don't want to overstate that or understate it, because it ha- really has been—life uh, is not terrible. Life is better than it has ever been, even if I'm working in a, in a, in a cubicle job, to, 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 uh, you know, to, to beat that metaphor. But— uh, you have to experience freedom, and then once you experience it, then you can choose to go back and, and submit yourself voluntarily, and it's much more powerful than if you've never had a chance to taste freedom. The, 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 the human slave that had the opportunity to go and taste freedom and came back and chose to work for someone to whom they were formerly enslaved, that's very different than the person who all they had ever known was the conditioning of being a slave, and they chose to—and and they just simply— out of fear, continued in that codependent relationship, and and I think that's probably what happened more than more often than the other. Right. Uh, and right. Go ahead. And, and, and I was just saying, and we're talking about this from the perspective of of, of two white guys, right? But right. I, yeah. Even, even if even if you and I mentioned Frederick Douglass, even you go back and read Malcolm X. Go back and read Malcolm X. He says the same thing. Really. He, ta- he, he talks about the the field Negro and the house Negro, and. And the the different mentalities they have, right? I mean, you know, the the field the field guys out there, uh, uh, you know, sweating and and dying and bleeding and working hot in the sun, and and the guy in the house is, uh, you know, taking care of the master, and he, you know, he 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 wants to help the master and all this, you know, he's he's supporting the master. Malcolm X draws that analogy to, I guess he was alive what in the '60s, maybe early '70s. He 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 draws that analogy to uh, to people living in that time in the in the comfort of of. Uh, of their American society, you know, saying, no, are you, are you, uh, are you in the house? Or are you in the field? Right. Because the guy in the field, he's praying that the master dies and he's praying that the master's sure. house burns down. The guy, the, uh, the guy in the house, you know, he's, he's putting out the fire. He's trying to help master. Yeah. So challenging to work through these things. You know, I talked a little bit about them in the last few days and, and I had such a reaction from the audience. I got some great emails and just really challenged my thinking. And, uh, hopefully we've done a good job of, looking at it rationally, but, but it is tough. You know, it's, it's, it's neither of us has ever experienced it. And, and um, uh, it's challenging. Let's move on and let's wrap up with talking about, uh, actually some of the business of, of financial services. Uh, what on earth makes you qualified to think that you have any, uh, any, any idea or any ability with my money? Like why, what on earth makes you think that you could, you know, you could do something after all, um, you know, the the markets are efficient and nobody can ever consistently uh predict or time the market so what how on earth can you be so uh brazen as to say that you have a, a <laughs> that you have any insight to offer me with my money right and, and i i um 
I temper a little bit of that when I talk to my clients about, I tell them to be leery, very leery of anybody that claims to be an expert. I'm not an expert. I don't have some secret algorithm. I don't, uh, you know, I don't have any insider information. And, and obviously if I did, I couldn't trade on it anyways, right? I mean, so when you see these, these uh, advertisements or headlines, either in newspapers or, or the internet, you know, the, 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 the five next stocks to buy or uh, the thing that kills me is everybody quotes Warren Buffett. Like I always say, if you, if, if the headline has Warren Buffett in it, don't read it <laughs> because the, the person the, the one thing they're taking probably Warren out of context Two, Warren lies to you about what he really does. And, and three, if, if they're talking about Warren Buffett, then they're obviously telling you that they don't have any credentials themselves because why would they be referencing Warren Buffett? But um, so to kind of come to that, say, you know, Joshua, listen, this is my life experience, right? This is, this is the things that I believe. And again, breaking them down into very simple equations, you, you save, you earn, you invest, Okay, and when you get to that investment part, you have to make prudent decisions. There are times and seasons for all things. Things go up and down, and and I do believe overall, yes, the market's efficient in terms of uh, uh, duration. You know, over over five or ten or twenty years, things work themselves out. But there are obviously bubbles. I mean, how can we deny that that things get either underpriced or overpriced, oversold, undersold? Um, the house that I'm living in. Was a, was a foreclosure. The guy spent, uh, uh, I don't know, f- f- over half a million dollars, $550,000 for it, uh, 2007. I bought it in 2010 for you know, $300,000. He, did he pay too much or I paid too little? I don't know, but either way, I'm sitting on an asset now and that guy was bankrupt uh, because I knew how to take advantage of it. I knew how to, how to distinguish and determine value. And uh, me personally, I didn't do it through a formal education. Although I am formally educated, I'm not formally educated in, in finance. I, I studied science and engineering. Um, I don't have any fancy titles behind my name. I know you do. You have a whole bunch of alphabet. <laughs> that doesn't mean you. anything except I'm good at taking tests. <laughs> I was gonna say, you know, of all those things, I am so pathetic in terms of the financial industry. I only know what one of those means. I don't even know what the rest of them mean. <laughs> Probably I, better I, that way. I have, I have no clue what they even mean. I know the certified financial planner designation. I don't even know the rest of them. Yeah. But so, so I don't, I don't know those things, but, but I, I do know value and I know that things ebb and flow. And I know that the United States stock market, um, Again, there are all kinds of troubles. The debt's too high. The Fed's balance sheet is too large. There's too many people on food stamps. Right? I, I get all that. But we've been in bad times before. And because of all the things we talked about before in our conversation about the apps that didn't used to exist, the smartphones that didn't used to exist, the you and I are talking free over Skype, right? And if right. We, and we could we could be doing a uh, uh, you know a visual one. We're just doing we're just doing voiceover. But we could we could be seeing each other as well. When I was a kid, that was George Jetson, right? right? That was the cartoons. That, that you know, we all thought, yes, someday that's going to happen. But, but the fact that it's happening today, it's free. We're not even paying for it. You know, it's just like part of our internet bill. We could be sitting at, at uh, Starbucks doing the same thing for free. That's the beauty of of the American what what's left of the free enterprise system that we have. But it's still solid. It's still alive and well. There's there's nothing, in my opinion, no market that's more transparent, uh, no market that's more honest. Um, and, and so in my regards, like I say, you can make money in real estate or other things. I think that if you're going to take a portion of your portfolio, you do want to invest it in United States equities. You, you 
depending upon how much you have, you want to put that in individual stocks or in exchange traded funds, and you and you can't absolutely 100% time the market, but you can see trends. You can see, um, again, these these flows of 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 uh, when there's when there's euphoria, there's there's ir- times of irrational exuberance, and there's other times of you know sheer despair and depression. And if you, over time, learn to invest in those, you can significantly increase your returns. And I'm not always right. I'm I'm right now. I'm 90% in cash. Mm-hmm. You know, I have I have clients that are scratching their heads, saying, "John, wh- why am I paying you anything? Right. You know, why you?" And and I say, and first of all, I tell them, you know, really, if you you don't have to pay me, you can. Uh, I'm I'm a fee only. I charge in arrears. At the end of the month, I mean, you can leave me at any time you want to, mm-hmm. but that is my trading stat. I, I think cash is is a um, is a uh, undervalued asset class. Mm-hmm. You can all you can always go to cash, and the only thing you're going to risk there is the opportunity cost, which to me really isn't a risk. You're going you're to miss an opportunity cost of maybe missing an market a market upswing. The only other thing you're going to lose is to inflation, and you know right now. When I look at the fact that I can be in bonds, but what if the Federal Reserve or, or just the market itself does raise interest rates? Well, bonds have gone, come down for the, I get, you know, since the past 30, 35 years. I understand that. But that doesn't mean that if yields go back up, you could lose principal in bond funds. Sure. People don't understand this. So that's a, that's a concern to me. The stock market, although I don't think it's a, necessarily a bubble right now, it is certainly fully valued, fully priced. And I don't see that next Right. What's the next big invention? Apple's going to come up with a bigger screen on on their iPhone. I mean, you know, what's what's really going to drive that next next sales? Um, I look at things like you know GoPro, the GoPro IPO. Mm-hmm. I mean, come on. I mean, that's way overvalued. You know, mm-hmm. in six months, when all the insiders sell their shares. <laughs> I, I, by the way, I'm not making a stock prediction. I'm sure. just just illustrating a point, right? I mean, I I look at those kind of things in the marketplace right now, and I'm very concerned. Mm-hmm. And um, and so right now, you know, I'm I'm 90% in cash, uh, with mine and my client. Some of my clients are 100% in cash, um, but no one would be more than more than a, in any kind of a 10% position. Some of that's in the U.S. dollar itself. Um, I uh, overall I'm up probably somewhere between three to four and a half percent, depending upon what kind of portfolio I'm managing. So I'm not up a great deal, but I'm up certainly enough to cover my. One percent transaction fee that I would charge someone in a year, mm-hmm. and then factoring in two percent inflation, we're still above that, and and it's September, and there's still plenty of time for a Santa Claus rally if if I decide to go that route. But um, so, kind of in a nutshell, long term and short term, that's what I tell my clients. That's what I talk about. I think there's value. I think you can, you can't absolutely one hundred percent time the market. And again, if someone tells you they can, if they tell you they have an algorithm or high speed trading, or you know they're lying, and you should just discount everything they say. But if, but if you use common sense and you're prudent, and in some years, you don't make. Right, right now, the market's up about five and a half percent. Last year, it was up thirty percent. The year before, it was what up two percent. The year before that, it was down ten. I mean, you don't, you don't know, uh, you don't know what you're going to make from year to year. But if you're prudent and and you know that ninety percent, or excuse me, about seventy seventy five percent of a stock's performance is based on the overall market trend. Okay, that's a that's a a, uh, a William O'Neill, a Bill O'Neill thing that he's researched, and I, I've looked into the numbers. I agree with it. Um, if the market's up 70, 
75% of stocks are going to be up, right? And they may not be, it kind of gets back to that thing we talked about with earning it. It depends on their skill and their ability, right? They, some are up more than others, but when the market's up, it rises, you know, the tide rises all boats. And when the market's down, even the high flyers fall apart. I remember the summer, the fall of 2008, every asset class was down. All right, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I remember S&P was down, you know, internet stocks were down, gold was down, um, even the U.S. dollar was was down there for a while. There was there was pandemonium, and and what you do is you want you want to avoid those those busts. You want to avoid the internet bubble of 2000. You want to avoid um, you know a market crash of like 2008 2009, and and if you can avoid those big things, if you see the storm clouds, right? I can look out my window right now, and hey, it's 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 sunny out. There's a few clouds. I can so I, I take a risk. Everything has a risk. I know I I I can say I'm probably going to be 80% sure it's not going to rain. You can do that with the stock market. You can look at it and say, "Hey, I don't know if terrorists are going to fly airplanes into a building tomorrow and crash the stock market, or I don't know if Russia is going to you know drop a nuclear bomb on on uh, the Ukraine." Right? Those are things you can't predict. But yeah, that other stuff you you can you can get a feel for it. You can say, "Hey, the Federal Reserve is is ending." totally ending uh, QE3 next month in October. Uh, you can say, uh, you know, gee, the, uh, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the German and the, and the Japanese stock markets are both down 10% right now year to year to date based on their high on their market highs this year. Um, the, the French 10 year treasury is paying under 1%. Um, you know, you can look at all those things and say, geez, we're just not seeing correlations. You know, why is the, why is the fed, backing out of, of their $85 billion a month QE and our interest rates, the yields have actually come down instead of gone up. I mean, that doesn't correlate. Something, something's not right. And, and it doesn't mean that you're going to predict accurately what's going to happen, but it does mean that you can say, well, hey, I'm going to go to cash for a while because I, my, my model isn't working. And when my model doesn't work, mm-hmm. I, I, there's a better chance that I'm not going to make money than I am going to make money. And so you sit in cash for a little bit. And, and you do that through a discount broker, it, it costs you next to nothing. Right. In the years that I've been working in the financial business, I've, I've changed my thoughts and opinions quite a bit. And it's one of the drivers behind this show. I used to think that there was one way and there was one right way and that one right way could be found. And so my job was just to find the one right way, no matter what the situation was. And so whether that were an investment philosophy, whether that were a person, whether that were a guru, an oracle, a, uh, you know, a company, like this is the right way. I've learned over time that just through hard experience and through screwing some stuff up, that that may not exactly be an accurate perception. And there's a lot of pride and a lot lot of hubris in that perspective because when you have a worthy opponent to your point of view, and this is a person who is intelligent and this is a person who is learned, and yet they disagree with you, it's very easy to dismiss them and say, well, they're just wrong. But that's probably not true. It's probably a better idea to say, let me just try to understand what why they think what they think. Now, they could think what they think, or they could be sharing their opinion because they're nefarious, uh, and they have a hidden agenda. They have an ulterior motive. Uh, they could also be ignorant. Uh, they could, or they could be have a different set of information to look at things with. 
And I've learned over time that I think many of the discussions, as I've become more knowledgeable about investments, about financial planning, about different approaches, the more I learn, the more I recognize that in general, one of the biggest problems is that we have a soundbite culture and people aren't either able or willing to spend time really understanding a position. And most of the positions are more nuanced. So I, I bait you and I bait other people and I'm, I'll have, and I invite anybody who has very, I love people with strong opinions about investments. I like to have people on who say, uh, you know, only index funds every time. I like to have people come on and say only real estate every time. I like to have people come on that say uh, only gold coins every time or only, you know, jars of soup or only cash or whatever the situation is because you can learn from them. But as I've, as I've learned, I've understood that, uh, that most positions are more nuanced. So an example I would give, I tried to bait you with the efficient market hypothesis. I never knew until I was taking CFP classes that the efficient market hypothesis had three versions, that it had the weak form hypothesis, the semi-strong form hypothesis, and the strong form. And all of a sudden, now I understood that, wait a second, what I understood to be the efficient market hypothesis, it may not exactly be so. Uh, maybe there is, there's some nuance to it. So me personally, at this point, uh, I think I am a proponent of what's called the weak form, but I can't, I have a tough time buying the semi-strong, I, I can, okay, I'm okay with the semi-strong form, but I can't buy the strong form right. uh, personally, it, but I'll know, buy it, the weak it, form. Yeah, sure. And the whole efficiency, I mean, it makes sense, right? right? Stocks, stocks are valued based on their earnings. At the end of the day, that's what they're, that's what it's based on. They have to have earnings, but we don't know what's going to happen in the future because mm -hmm. it's it's not based on earnings today. It's really based on future earnings. Right. You know what, what are the earnings expectations? And so, yeah, we can look at Apple stock right now and we can say, oh yeah, seven hundred dollars a share, or it's splitting. It's a hundred dollars a share. Yeah, that makes sense based on these, you know, their earnings history and their projected earnings. But we don't know. We don't know what those earnings are going to be in three months. What if, what if uh, you know another tsunami hits Japan and. Uh, and uh, wipes out more of their nuclear reactors and, it, and the supply chain for you know, some intricate part of the, of the next iPhone 6 gets affected and, and, it, and they can't make iPhones anymore, right? Or, or someone comes up with a better idea or you, know, you just you don't know what future earnings are. So right. yeah, most of the time, you know, it's like the, the, the clock that's right twice a day, right? Most of the time you can gauge the price of a stock, but sometimes it's going to be undervalued, sometimes it's going to be overvalued. And you can even be wrong and make money. Yes, see, I'm not a genius, right? I've probably been wrong plenty of times. I've still made money in the market because I don't buy and hold. I don't buy a stock. You know, you could have made money off of Enron as long as you sold it before it fell apart. Mm -hmm. right? You could have made you could have made money in in 1997, 98, 99, and up until about June of 2000 in the internet bubble, the dot com bubble. You could have made money all the way up there as long as you were out before you know around June of 2000. That's that's what I think people have to understand is they they can't just buy and hold because the market um, the this is why I I have less than full respect for people in the financial industry you know they'll quote the statistics and people always want to know to me you know what's the average of you know how uh, when we have a twenty percent decline in the stock market or how long are we in a recession or or you know what's the average return on a, on a stock portfolio well yeah I can tell you it's seven or eight percent. You know, but what well, we calculate that what over 187 years of the stock market? Mm -hmm. No, no one. I don't know any. My, my grandfather lived to be almost 100. He didn't live for 187 years, right? He didn't invest that long. We're all going to only invest for 20 or 30 years, and and the time, 
that it really matters is that last quarter of that time anyways, because that's the more money you have, the more you're going to be affected by fluctuations in the market. So who cares if the average return over the last 100 years is 8%? If if you needed your money in 2007, 8, 9, you were in a lot of trouble, right? If that was a year that, that you were retiring or or whatever, you know, you needed bypass surgery and you had to sell your stocks, you lost 48, 50% of your net worth if you just bought and hold. I don't believe in that. I, I, I encourage people to, obviously I don't encourage people who don't know what they're doing. Not, you know, I don't encourage them to trade, but I encourage people to be, to be wise about their investments. And even if they're just in exchange traded funds or if they're mutual funds, just because everybody else is doing it, doesn't mean that they should be invested. If, if they're feeling concerned, if they think there's a recession coming, they can take some money off the table. Just roll it into their uh, into their money market fund. Right, and that's where the intersection is uh, between. That's what I call financial planning, and I view portfolio management as a subset of financial planning. Uh, I've got an interview lined up with uh, I think it's I can't remember if it's this week or next week, but with uh, with a guy who's got a history worked for I think about twenty years as a portfolio manager, but the there is a major difference in how you would manage a portfolio if you're managing a portfolio for a nonprofit foundation versus if you're managing a retirement portfolio when you have a clear retirement date versus if you have a substantial amount of income coming from a business uh, and you have cash reserves and you have another portfolio that's allocated towards your retirement or towards your kids' inheritances. Like All of these portfolios can be managed differently. And it's... Uh, and. Uh, I'm going to disagree with you and feel free to, to disagree right back if you think. I would say there's no reason that buy and hold can't work if buy and hold, if the strategy of buy and hold, if we've clearly identified it. Because, yes, you would have gotten creamed if you owned – let's take my friend Jim Collins. Okay, so awesome guy. Jim Jim is a, a really good guy, and he's written a whole series on stock investing. And his his deal for everybody is basically buy the total stock market index fund and sit tight. That can work brilliantly for you because if you had if you had done that in two thousand and seven, you would today have all of your money plus uh, plus a gain. But if you didn't incorporate financial planning, and if to your point, if that was a portfolio that you needed in two thousand and nine, or if you bailed on the plan because you didn't have the you know someone to coach you through it, uh, or you know there can be any number of reasons why investors shoot themselves in the foot. And the problem is, is that when you are like, until you get to the point where you can look behind the numbers, when you can open up a brochure from Vanguard, dig into the numbers, read the study, when you can open up a, a, a uh, when you can read the ADV for, uh, what's the name of your, uh, Investable Wealth uh, for John Pugliano and read his ADV and see what he does. And you can take that and compare that. You need to develop an interest enough to know why certain things work and why they don't and where the, the tricky points are and where they're not. Why would you choose an ETF? instead of a mutual fund? Why would you choose a mutual fund instead of an ETF? Why would you trade an option on a, on a, on a prediction? Or why would you go ahead and buy the stock? Like That's what I'm hoping my show can accomplish is to encourage people to get interested enough to understand what they're doing and why it works or doesn't work. Because only with knowledge comes comfort. And with comfort, that's when you can sit passively by and follow your strategy, whatever it be. And, and right. many strategies can work if they're followed, but strategies that aren't followed don't work. Right. And I agree with you. And again, again sure, if you, sat, if you had $10,000 in 2007 and you sat through today, you'd, you'd have more than that. You'd, you'd have actually, you know, at, at this point, you've been caught up with inflation. Um, 
where I see the negative to that is, is it's the, it's the guy that had the, the million dollars or the $2 million and he had saved up all the way through retirement. He takes a major hit and he had to wait, you know, close to a good five years to, to beat that with inflation, to get that money back. It, it was different than the guy that only had $10,000 in the game. On the other side of that, you could say, well, why did that guy have so much money? You know, why, why is he, why wasn't he better diversified? Well, we don't know how much he had in, in bonds or other funds, but, but again, like I say, bonds are not safe. Bond funds, if, if we see interest rates go to 4%, if the 10 year goes to 4%, people are going to lose 50% in their bond funds. It isn't, it isn't that you can't lose money on a bond, you know, depending on the duration, if they're in 20 or 30 year mm-hmm. uh, duration bond funds, you can lose money in bonds as well. So, so my, my rationale that would be, well, why not have a disciplined mes- method to it where, hey, if you see it, if you see it falling below the whatever your whatever your particular number is, if if the if the S and P breaks its fifty day line or its two hundred day moving average or whatever, maybe that's just where you get out. You just say, hey, I'm going to get out when that happens, and I'm going to get back in when when it when it gets back over its fifty day line or something. And that's just you just follow that strategy. Mm-hmm. To me, that's a better strategy than buy and hold. And and you know, for the for the just the. Um, Normal investor, the the person that, that doesn't, for the person that has less than say two hundred fifty thousand dollars, I don't consider them investors. Uh, particularly people that only have ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars. The industry, and again, this is my gripe with the industry. They want everybody to think they're an investor because if they're an investor, I can charge them fees, right? I can charge them mutual fund fees and four hundred one k fees, mm-hmm. and I can I can charge them planning fees. But if they're a saver, I really don't make any money. It's, it's sort of like insurance, right? If they buy term insurance, which is probably what they need, I don't make a commission. Mm-hmm. If they buy whole life, I make a big commission. If I can sell them an annuity, I make a big – I say I. I don't do any of that, so I don't make a commission. But that, that's what a, a, a salesman in the financial industry, he's worried about, for the most part, he's worried about his financial success. And so he's going to sell people annuities and all these things they don't really need. If you have a small amount of money – you should be saving it in your emergency fund. You should be spending it on your on your preps, right? Making sure you have food and water in case you know, a, a hurricane comes through or whatever. Sure. Spending that money, educating yourself, learning how to get to that next job level. Uh, because again, it gets back to that thing of saving. If if you're if you have ten thousand dollars, no matter what how what kind of return you get on it, it's not going to be as good of a return as it's going to be if you can figure out how to go from a thirty thousand thousand dollar job to a fifty thousand dollar job or a, a fifty thousand jo- dollar uh, you know year job to an eighty thousand dollar year job so at that point you, you know you need to be investing in other things that, and generally you know besides maybe me and you and a few other people you're not hearing people in the financial industry tell you that right i mean they're they're telling you buy whatever they're selling um and the other side of it too is even for the people that have a lot of money the people that have say more than two hundred thousand dollars I don't see financial planners taking care of those people where where they are moving them to cash when when they're concerned or where they're buying protective puts for them or where they're doing other kind of hedge strategies that that you know it takes a risk right if you're, you're going to buy this put maybe maybe you are going to maybe lose 2% or something on it but it's a it's a hedge and I I don't see them doing that for their clients I see them it's the standard 25% in uh, you know emerging markets, 25% in large caps, 25% in technology, you know 25% in bonds, and and they say they're diversified. You know, to me, I think if you're going to invest that way, you're better off getting an exchange traded fund like the SPY Spiders. You know, it's is S&P 500 ETF. You're paying very low um, 
very low uh, you know transaction fees. If you mm -hmm. buy through a discount broker, you're paying you know virtually nothing in management fees, and you're going to get the performance of the market, and you're going to get all the performance of the market. When whenever half the companies in the S and P are, are are getting you know more than half of their earnings from overseas, you're getting your you have your overseas exposure. When Apple goes out and buys a company like like Beats or you know these big companies buy small companies, you you're kind of getting that exposure, getting that growth, you're getting the constant churning of the S and P. It's it isn't always the same companies. They're always, you know, uh, it wasn't too long ago that that uh, Alcoa got dropped from the the uh, the Dow Industrial and you know Nike came on. Things are always always changing. So if if you could invest in nothing else, exchange traded fund spiders, you know S and P five hundred. That's to me. That's the way to go, and just and just know when to uh, maybe when to take some money off the table. Would you rather have knowledgeable clients, or would you rather have ignorant clients? Oh, I I don't I don't have time for ignorant clients. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I I only want intelligent. My clients Good. are my clients are all smarter than me. I would say I don't know. I don't have any client that isn't as smart as me. Um, but my clients don't want to manage their money. I mean, that's the kind of clients I have, right? I obviously don't want a client that wants to manage their own money because they wouldn't need me. What would they need me for? I'm, I'm like the guy, Jiffy Lube, that changes the oil on your car. You could change it yourself. I, I used to change my oil. I, I was a mechanic in my early life, and uh, I, I know all about changing oil. I know the benefits of it. I know how to do it. But I'm 53 years old now, right? I'm not going to get underneath my car and burn my hand on the filter or what am I going you know, to just pay the place to dispose of the dirty oil, stuff like that. So I take it to Jiffy Lube, right? I wait till I get a coupon. I take it to Jiffy Lube. Right. The people's money that I manage are the same way. They're probably capable of managing their own money, but they just, they don't have the time. I, I look at it all day long. If I wasn't talking to you right now, right, I'd be, I'd be looking at stocks, not necessarily trading them, but I would be looking at the market. I'd be trying to figure out, you know, why, why the heck are people paying less than 1% for, 10-year bonds in France right now. It was, and I know what's driving. I know it's negative interest rates from the ECB and that, but it's just like this is, this, these things don't correlate, and I try and understand that. And my clients, they don't have time to do that. They're, they're engineers and they're doctors and they're small business owners. Right. To me, and uh, with this we'll wrap up and I'll give you the last word, anything that you want to share, and then uh, uh, feel free to, to, to mention all your sites and make sure people can know where to find you. To me, I've always experienced this, now, and I, I'm trying to tackle head-on one of the most <laughs> despised businesses in the world. Uh, I mean, I've, I've read surveys that, that you know, financial advisors and stockbrokers and, and whatnot are more, uh, you know, in many ways, more less trusted than just about any other profession. Uh, but the, one of the things that I've always struggled with is how to reconcile my personal experience in the industry with uh, with common perception. Because everyone, many people, are quick to talk about uh, what the perception of the industry is, and versus my personal experience. And to me, one of the things that I learned uh, just doing it is that. Uh, in working in the industry, I met a couple of people that I just wanted to run away from. But the majority of financial advisors, the majority of insurance agents, the majority of stockbrokers that I've interacted with, the majority of, of accountants and planners, and the majority of people that I've interacted with were caring, straightforward people who want, uh, who want to, to really do an honest, ethical, ethical job. 
But I think what happened is a lot of what happens is a lot of times that there's not a good fit and a not a good fit between a specific client and a specific advisor. And so what happens is you have clients and advisors who aren't a good fit for each other, but a lot of times the clients aren't knowledgeable enough to know who they're a fit for and who they're not. So they're not knowledgeable enough to buy the the, the, the services that they need or want from the person who's able to offer it. Uh, so my hope is that I was like I'm like just like you. I, I I would always rather have a client who's an expert at everything that uh, at everything that I, I would rather have a client that knows everything that I know because those were the easiest clients to work with and they they know specifically Joshua I'm hiring you for this and so that's my vision with this show is I'm going to try to give away every bit of knowledge that I have about financial planning uh, and by that I, I imagine that the market for financial planning services will grow hugely. The market for investment services will grow hugely because people will be more more educated, and they will be able to purchase the services of the advisor that's a good fit for them, the advisor that's pursuing the strategy that they want pursued. And I think that'll. My hope is that that'll lead to much better uh, relationships across the industry and a better reputation for the industry. So, John, I'll give you the last word, and uh, feel free to share anything else that you'd like to share with the audience, and then uh, mention where you can be found on the web and anything else you'd like to mention. Sure thing. And I do agree with you about, about giving it away for free and doing things like these podcasts. I mean, that's the same thing I'm doing with my podcast. I'm trying to educate people. Um, and I believe in the prosperity theory. Again, it isn't, it isn't, uh, I don't hold back anything on my podcast. I tell people what I think. Uh, if, if I, if I, uh, you know, I basically try to train them and use the, the processes that I've used over the last 30, 40 years to get where I'm at. And I think that that brings me clients that doesn't, take clients away from me because mm-hmm. uh, you know, ultimately, like I say, people don't want to change their own oil. Uh, they'd rather have me do it for them. But uh, where, where I, and I, I would agree with you too in terms of, I don't think financial people are evil, right? I mean, they're, I was going to say they're like politicians, but that's not true. We know politicians are evil. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, they're, they're uh, you know, it's one of those things that, but the, they're caught up in their matrix, right? They're caught up in, in what they're at, right? And they, Ultimately, their 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 good intentions are probably persuaded by where their paycheck comes from, and they they just and even if they even if they believe in what they're telling you, what they're telling you may not be the whole truth because of the way they've been indoctrinated. And so that's that's just the problem I have with the general financial industry. But, anyways, having said that, it's not their fault though. I tell people that even if your financial advisor you know, was a sleazy guy or whatever, ripped you off. I mean, if you had Bernie Madoff as your financial guy, you know what? It was your own fault because the warning signs were there. All right. Um, Bernie was a crook. And, and you know, just like uh, a normal financial person that wouldn't be anywhere near that bad. I mean, if, if they're giving you bad information and you're not smart enough to educate yourself, I mean, it's your money. As a client, it's your money. You can't expect that someone else you, – you have to be cautious. You have to know that other people – may not either be informed or they may be trying to sell you something you don't need or they they may be just out and out trying to rip you off. And so as an investor, it's your responsibility. Uh, you can't blame the financial advisor. You need to – legally you can. I'm, I'm not saying it that way. I'm just saying sure. it, the, way the, the way the universe works, you need to be responsible for your own wealth. I, I, I named my firm very specifically – you know, I could have named it some kind of wealth management or, you know, Pugliano – capital management or something. I named it investable wealth for a specific reason, because part of in educating my clients, I want them to know 
that, that that part of that equation where they get wealthy is that income part, and they have to invest their wealth. It's about investing their wealth. Now, I can help them with that. I can make those discretionary decisions about where to invest it, but they're responsible for their overall wealth. And again, that's why my podcast is called Wealth Steading. It's about the individual investor, the client, taking responsibility for their own wealth. I can help them. I can hold their hand, but I can't stop them from using their credit card. I can't stop them from, you know, um, making making poor lifestyle decisions or from you know, not educating themselves so they get a better job. I, I can't. That's where their wealth is going to be derived from. I can only help them from that investable wealth part that, that we're working with together. So the investor has to beware and it's buyer beware. Uh, take take responsibility for your own money. If you only have $1,000, you're not an investor, you're a saver. Work on improving yourself. Work on getting the discipline to educate and inform yourself. Learn how to make more money. You're, you're not going to get rich. You're not going to win the lottery. You're not going to get an inheritance. Uh, if, if you don't make it on your own, no one's going to give it to you. So, so understand where you fit in society and how you can increase your earnings. And think of that immigrant mentality because from the history of our country, immigrants have come here. They didn't speak the language. They weren't formally educated. And in 30 years, you know, they were financially independent. If they can do it, then you certainly can do that as well. Uh, and then on the other side, for people that do have a lot of money, just be very cautious. Don't think that bond funds aren't risky. Don't think that the stock market isn't risky. Don't think that the Federal Reserve cares if we have a stock market crash. That's that's the latest thing I keep reading is that you know everybody's saying that, oh, well, the Federal Reserve won't do this or that because they don't want to crash the market. Last time I checked, you know, it's the member banks are banks, and they recapitalize themselves over the last six years. They pretty much have sold all their bad loans, and, uh, and they've, they've got all this money on their balance sheets. I don't know that they care that the stock market would crash. That's not a mandate for the Federal Reserve, and I think Janet Yellen's even maybe teed herself up for her comments you know, a couple of weeks ago about uh, irrational exuberance in, in the social media and, and, uh, tech, and uh, biotech stocks, things like that. Um, don't think the Federal Reserve has your back. You have to be responsible for your own wealth. Um, as far as about people finding me, they can Google my name, John Pugliano. It's fairly unique. No matter how you spell it, you'll probably find me. <laughs> In- Investable Wealth is my uh, investment firm. Uh, there's some information on there, whether you have a little bit of money or a lot of bit of money. Like I said, the talk, I talk on there about building wealth. If you, if you don't have that half a million dollars or something, you want to figure out how to get there, you can read my section about being an immigrant and being a, uh, uh, you know, going through these business models on building wealth. And then I'd love to have you people listen to my podcast, Wealth Steading Podcast. Uh, Wellsteading.com is a website. You can find me on Stitcher, iTunes. Um, they'll get a different. They'll get a different. Um, I think interpretations of that. This is the wrong. Word. They'll get. It, it's different than your show, but it. it compl- I think our shows complement each other, and obviously that's why I enjoy being a guest on your show. I think uh, you definitely. We are like minds, but we come through things a little bit differently. Sure. You're. You know. You're. You're not thirty. I'm over fifty. You're more formally educated. I'm less educated, but um, we so we come from it from different angles. I think the, I think our overall message is very similar and rings true, but we'll we'll cover different topics and come at it from different angles. So I think I think people would uh, enjoy listening to both of our shows. Absolutely, and if uh, uh, my my philosophy is uh, spend fifty percent of your time listening to and learning people that concur with what you believe already. And spend the other fifty percent of your time learning to learning from and listening to people that you absolutely disagree with, 
and trying to understand how they get to that thinking so you can figure out whether you're right or wrong. Uh, yeah. the, the worst thing that we do is we have this total confirmation bias where we kind of glom onto an idea and say, this is correct. And so then we just go out looking for people and evidence to point to how we're correct. And that's exactly the wrong thing to do. You know, Understand what makes sense, but then go look for someone that absolutely disagrees with you and try to lay aside your judgment of them and say, let me understand what their argument is and what they're thinking, and then let me figure out how to apply that to my situation and see if I still believe what I believe. We've lost the ability to argue with ourselves uh, in a rational way, and I think we've got to develop that critical thinking, and and the only way that happens uh, is by being exposed. That's why, again, that's why I'm glad to have you on. Uh, And we talk about what we agree on, and we talk about what we disagree on, and we'll both be the better for it. Yeah, and I'm glad you said. Let me let me throw in one more shameless plug. Sure. Um, what you just talked about too is what I call propaganda, and I have the first ten episodes of my of my uh, podcast or, or what I call the wealth building skills. So there's ten wealth building skills. I believe number eight is about decrypting propaganda, mm-hmm. and I and I talk about exactly what you said. You got to listen to people you agree with. You got to listen to people you don't agree with. You even have to listen to people that uh, on the left and the right. I mean, right. You, you see something on Fox News, you see something on CNBC, you know, they're both lying to you or distorting the news in one way, but they're also, there's an element of truth in both of what they're saying, or they wouldn't be able to, to develop it. So you listen to both of those sources. And then just like you would when you're navigating, you triangulate, you say, well, so this is probably true. And that's probably true. And then you draw the line and Somewhere not necessarily in the middle, you'll find a truth, and right. you find that you find that based on facts. And absolutely, would encourage people to do that. Listen to the first ten episodes of my podcast to understand those those uh, wealth building principles. Yeah, I'd give it one more. Listen to Fox News, listen to MSNBC, then go to MoveOn.org, then go to Infowars.com, then go to I don't know sure. Media I'll, Matters, I'll, I'll, then I'll go to <laughs> drug, drug Report. There we absolutely. go. <laughs> Get a little outside of this uh, this stupid, <laughs> you know, what we perceive to be uh, political dichotomy, and let's go to the extreme. Read the Communist Party newsletter and read the uh, the Libertarian Party newsletter. <laughs> absolutely, so, absolutely, John. Thanks for coming on. I've really enjoyed this conversation, and I appreciate. Appreciate you making the time for for such an in depth conversation. Absolutely, I enjoyed it. I know you got uh, great listeners. You have really good content, and and I do want an invitation back to talk about the economics of large families. Deal. We'll do. We will. We will do it. Awesome. Uh, so, thanks so much. Thank, thank you. And that's the interview, John. Thanks again for coming on. I really enjoyed that. I hope that you enjoyed it as well. Just want to point out a couple of the lessons, the few things that I learned from the interview and a couple of these themes that I've observed and you can hear again in John's story. First, frugality. Do you see now why frugality is such an important, important skill? Frugality plays a role in all long-term success stories. All. There are plenty of stories that you can find of people who have come into quick wealth and quickly lost it because of a lack of frugality. Frugality, the major reason for frugality is frugality allows you to get the difference, the delta between your income and your expenses so that you have capital to invest. If you don't have capital to invest, you never have the opportunity to become financially independent, period. 
So you have to be frugal. But that level of frugality will change over time. So the level of frugality that you might need if you are just getting started, you're young, you're working for low wages, versus the level of frugality that you may need later in life when you're more established, your wages and your income are higher and your investment portfolio is a little bit thicker, that will change. But it never is okay to forget about frugality. Next, notice that John pursued a financially valuable skill. Again, sales is the great equalizer because in many industries, I won't say all, but in many industries, no matter what your background, no matter what your experience, if you can sell product, you can get paid very well. But you have to find the right type of sales position. As John said, there are plenty of sales positions that are very intricate, and there are sales positions that are very straightforward. And there have been people that have made their money and made their fortune in every industry. There really are. So don't discount sales. Next, pay attention to the formula that he taught me about career success. Career success is a matter of time, demand, and skill. The more time it takes to develop the skills, the higher the demand, and then the higher your level of personal skill, the higher the level of income. I thought that was an excellent formula. Then I hope you learned something by listening to John and listening to his stories about uh, you know what he thinks of when it comes to investing and how he invests. Um, a lot of times it seems played the wrong sound effect. A lot of times it it seems like investing is this overwhelming, daunting thing that can never be accomplished. But John did it. He's doing it. He's making a business off of it. So just consider that. Learn for yourself. Become an expert. Learn for yourself. Uh, as with all investing shows, none of what you heard today is considered to be investment advice. I don't even know how you could take it as that, but sorry, you got to say these things when we talk about investing. Neither John nor I know your personal situation and can't give personal commentary on your situation. Hope you enjoyed the show. Tomorrow, come back. We're going to do an interesting reader question tomorrow, a Q&A show, and we're going to talk about if you have a million bucks, is that enough money to retire early? received a very interesting question from a reader. I think you'll, a listener, I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, make sure to call in some questions from, I haven't gotten any questions on the Q&A line. So uh, I set that up last week. Make sure to call in some questions on the Q&A line. Click, the, come to the website, either on your phone or on your computer, and click the leave a voicemail button that will pop up right on the page and leave a voicemail with a question for a Friday Q&A show. I would be thrilled to answer those for you. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you like the show. Talk to you soon.